Give me one reason why I shouldn't have my boy here pull your head off. How about a magic trick? I'm gonna make this pencil disappear. It's it's gone. Oh, and by the way, the suit—it wasn't cheap. You ought to know. You bought it. Sit. I want to hear proposition. Let's wind the clocks back a year. These cops and lawyers wouldn't dare cross any of you. I mean, what happened? Did your, your balls drop off? Hmm? You, you see, a guy like me... Freak. <laughs> a guy like me... Look, listen. I know why you choose to have your little... <clears throat> group therapy sessions in broad daylight. I know why you're afraid to go out at night. The Batman. Hey everybody, this is Jordan from Smallville, Batcat Shipper. Finally you got it, right? Hey, it only took one episode to get it right, so <laughs> <laughs> we're on a roll. Well, it doesn't help that you wrote it down for me, Tim. <laughs> Dang, you're giving the secrets away. <laughs> oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. Um, <laughs> This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, and you can help support the Batman Universe by heading to patreon.com slash the Batman Universe. Now, before we get to anything, Tim, before we get to, you know, the Heath Ledger or even our Dark Knight Rises Minute by Minute commentary, I have to ask you, okay. what do you think about the Hall of Fame candidates uh, this year, inductees this year? Yeah, Hall of Fame week. I always love this part of the off season when we find out who's going into the hall of fame more so now that it's players getting in who i grew up watching yeah. <laughs> which makes it you know have more investment in it but yeah i think overall it was good to have you know a big class of four get yeah. voted in um we got chipper jones first ballot vladimir guerrero who should have went in last year first ballot but for some reason some voters wanted to keep him off their ballot why and then i know it's it was definitely like he was at 70 like a little over 70 percent not quite 75 last year yeah. he needed 75 percent to get in and this year he had like over 90 percent so like Jeez. he jumped 20 percent like what changed in these voters minds i like how all the baseball shows are making jokes and saying oh like did he was this season even better this in 2017 yeah. <laughs> since you know obviously he's been retired but like, why that big of a jump it would take something like a, one more season to have him make that big of a jump so yeah, that, it was dumb why he didn't get it last year because he deserved to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah, that's then. the thing, too. I mean, I think it shouldn't be 75%. I think it should be like 60, 65, maybe. You know, because I, I think 75 know. is a little too much. At the same time, too, I, I do like that it is kind of hard to get in. Yeah. You know, the Hall of Fame, not the Hall of Very Good. So I do like it. <laughs> you have to have, have reach a certain level in order to get that honor. So. Yeah, so Chipper Jones, Guerrero, Trevor Hoffman, and Jim Tomey. The only one, I don't know, I, he has the good numbers for it, but I don't know if he really is a Hall of Famer, Trevor Hoffman. Really? The, the Padres closer, just because yeah. every, <clears throat> excuse me, every big game, like a postseason game, he always blew the save. <laughs> I mean, 
he didn't have a lot of opportunities, but when he did get those opportunities, he didn't deliver. 98 with the Yankees, he gave a big home run to Scott Brocious. Then in 2007, when they were playing the, the Rockies, like a one-off playoff game to get into the playoffs, he blew the, the lead in that game, which cost the Padres. Then the All-Star game in 2003, which was the first year the All-Star game decided home field advantage. And the National League had the lead, and Trevor Hoffman blew that. <laughs> so every time there was a big moment, he never came through. But he had a long career, a very good career, you know, the first of 600 saves and all that. So I understand why he got in, but his postseason record, you know, I don't know, didn't justify it for me anyway. But <laughs> yeah, but it's still a great class getting in. Though. Yeah, and it's hard for, uh, you know, like relief pitchers, closers, uh, even DHs, you exactly. know, like Jim Tomey to, to, to get in. He, he played a lot of first base too, so he wasn't. He, I think DH for the latter part of his career, but yeah. he played a lot field. But Edgar Martinez of the Seattle Mariners, I was hoping he'd get in, but he made a big jump to seventy percent this year, and next year is his last year on the ballot. So I'm Uh-oh. pretty confident he'll get in. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, to me, you you can't really look at the numbers for um, relief pitchers or DHs. I think you have to look at like the big picture you know the longevity of their career you know where they played the big Um, moments too like i was saying with hoffman (laughs) like the big playoff moments with they delivered oh yeah you're right well i mean yeah it's like i said i think it's hard for closers relief pitchers dhs um yeah to, to, to to get into the hall of fame well, next year is going to be a big one because Mariano Rivera is on the ballot. And yeah. it's not a question of whether he gets in because you know, it's a no-brainer. He's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. The yeah. question is, will he set a new record for the most votes <laughs> getting it? I think Ken Griffey Jr. has it now with 98%. Yeah. And like, could Mariano be the first unanimous <laughs> player to get the votes? I doubt it. There'll be someone who you know won't vote for him for whatever reason, which is <laughs> insane. But hope he gets like the little like over 98 ahead of Griffey or 99 <laughs> percent have him set that new record yeah and you know what kind of irritates me every year um that we have the hall of fame voting you know the hall of fame um inductees you know the hall of fame talk comes around we always have to bring up Roger Clements and yes. Barry Bonds <laughs> we always have to bring them up like like Every single sports site has to bring up the, the, the argument, you know, that maybe they should be in uh, the Hall of Fame. I know. Until they're off the ballot, <laughs> which I is know. just like three or four more years, it's going to come up every single time. It's, it, it's, it's so irritating. It's like, no, I mean, they took steroids. I'm sorry. I mean, allegedly took steroids. No, they took <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty obvious, especially yeah. with bonds. <laughs> Yeah, I was happy, though, because they were projecting-wise that they would make another big jump this year because last year they were, like, the low 50s. Yeah. And they were projecting to maybe reach 60s. Like, oh, man, if they reach that high, they're going to get in eventually. Mm-hmm. But they didn't make a significant jump at all. Like, they're now in, like, the mid-50s. Like, they just jumped up, jumped up very, like, micro percentage points. <laughs> so <laughs> I was happy about that because I was you. I don't want them getting in at all. Well, maybe the baseball writers are kind of like – you and me, where it's like, I'm just so tired of this argument already. You know, it's good. We're, mm-hmm. we're not even going to vote for them this year. Yeah, I mean, I'm disappointed it's this high, but I mean, yeah. as long as they don't get in, I'll be happy. What about um, 
I think you brought this up earlier. Uh, Edgar Martinez. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I said, he was. He's, how close is he again? That's seventy percent. He got up to seventy wow. this year. So it's the last anyone year, who's yeah. usually that high, they usually get in the next year. Yeah. Right. right. And I think because it's his last year on the ballot, like voters will realize that so we better get him in. <laughs> yeah, and he deserves it too, right? Yeah. I, it's going to be funny that he get, he gets in with Rivera because I think he was one of the few players who had like who owned Rivera. He had like really good numbers against them. <laughs> so it'd be funny if you know the greatest closer of all time gets in, but the one player who had his number gets in with him. <laughs> that should be yeah. pretty fun. <laughs> um. But yeah, anyway, uh, congratulations to all of the new Hall of Fame, Baseball Hall of Famers. Um, But now we can get to our Dark Knight Rises minute-by-minute commentary. Minute-by-minute. You know, I realize a lot lot of people are doing this now. Or at least there's a podcast, right? I've noticed that too, yeah. (laughs) And they're doing it for a number of movies, right? I know there's, there's... Yeah. I know it's not just Batman. There is a Batman one. I think there's some yeah. Star Wars ones too. But yeah, we're trendsetters, Dane. <laughs> Look what we did. <laughs> I guess so. Um, so yeah, uh, for for this episode, we're going from minute 97 to 98. We're almost at 100 minutes, Tim. I know. We're getting, getting closer. <laughs> we're getting closer and closer. Um, so grab your HD DVD. Grab your um, Blu-ray. <laughs> yep. Grab your uh, DVD. Grab your VHS copy. It's all important. VHS copy. Um, grab your projector. Grab your laser disc. Grab your uh, Netflix physical media subscription. And grab your GameFly subscription. Uh, <laughs> grab and the most important one, Tim. Grab your blockbuster rental. Cannot forget that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just uh, cue it up to the 97th minute, and I'm going to give him the countdown. So, Tim, are you ready? Let's do it. All right, three, two, one, hit play. And we're in the middle of Bane's speech about Harvey Dent. Now, I think I said in the last episode, I have some things to say about this, but this is the one time in the film when I first saw it, and it was where Bane's voice where it felt a little too over the top and, you know, kind of got through. High pitched. That's yeah. Why. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like he's trying, like, to make his, or he, he's trying to yell, but he can't yell. So he has to <laughs> yeah. just go higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, yeah, when he's about to record his note right here. Yeah. And there's the apartment that we talked about. Could we get a good look to see who it is? <laughs> yeah. Whose apartment is that? <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to tell. Blake is kind of walking around, yeah, <laughs> like like he knows where he's going. So maybe it is his. I don't know. Just how, how you afford apartment like that? Maybe <laughs> maybe rent is cheap in Gotham. <laughs> maybe with all the crime there, maybe yeah. it's you know, easier to get a place. And plus, with the promotion he got recently in the film oh, to a yeah. detective, so maybe he was getting able to afford it. Yeah, but it hasn't been two weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's his, true. but maybe he jumped on it right away. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I remember oh. six months pass from yeah. you know during the course of the movie. So maybe this is kind of in the middle of those six months where he yeah. got a new apartment. <laughs> so so yeah, that's that's it, right? Yeah, that was a productive minute commentary. I would say. <laughs> I know. I mean, lo- looking at uh, Blake's apartment and <laughs> criticizing uh, Bane's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> a yelling voice. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's let's keep it on the movie front. And uh, why don't you tell everybody about our feature topic, Tim? Yeah. So this past Monday, it was t- hard to believe ten years ago was the tragic passing of Heath Ledger. And yeah, like I said, ten years has passed. I mean, this is going to be a tribute episode to Heath Ledger and his iconic, legendary performance of the Joker. You know, to honor what he did with with that role is how legendary it has become so um you know it was such a sad day when that happened i i remember exactly where i was and how i felt when that happened and i was at work just it was like during lunch during lunchtime and i was like going looking online like i usually do during that time and i don't think i w- was even at a batman site or saw anything yet but so like a co-worker Said it like, well, what do you guys hear? Like Heath Ledger died. I'm like, what? Like, no. Like, are you serious? And then I, you know, went to various Batman sites to confirm it, and other news outlets, and there it was. And it's just such a sad, empty feeling that I had that day because, I mean, of course, you know, first and foremost, you know, dying so young and leaving behind you know, his family and you know, young daughter at that time. So just that alone, you know, makes you sad for you know his family. You have to, I'm gonna have to go through that. And then just, you know, taking it from, you know, just as someone who was that I'm sure all fans felt this way, looking forward to the movie. And at this point, there was such a buzz about his performance early on at this like it happened in January, obviously. And the filming was done. You know, there was reports coming on about how, you know, there's going to be some, this could be something special. And knowing that he passed away before he had a chance for the movie to come out, everyone to enjoy his performance and for him to see how everyone reacted to that, to his iconic performance, you know, was sad that he was going to have to get to experience that and just had this dark cloud over, you know, the lead up to the movie and even parts of seeing the movie for the first time. So yeah, it was, it was just, you know, such a sad, empty, strange time during that period once we f- first found out about Heath Ledger passing away and then leading up to the eventual movie's release. But we don't want this to be, you know, a negative or a down, as this, down topic discussion just focusing on his death this is going to be a tribute discussion where we talk about you know what we loved about his performance and the build-up uh to him being cast and the first look at the joker but yeah so we don't we want to keep things a little upbeat here to honor Heath ledger as an actor in this legendary performance but uh, before we get into that dane do you remember like where you were and how you first found out about when he passed away yeah like you i was at work and then somebody said oh Heath ledger died and i was like wait what you know because he you don't really expect that, you know, because he, like you said, he was young and yeah, you just don't expect it. So it was, yeah, really surprising to me. Yeah. And just, you know, once you, this is all superficial stuff, of course, once like later on, as the movie is getting closer, but you just can't help but start to wonder what does it mean for, you know, the movie and going forward uh, for, you know, the story of what Christopher Nolan had planned and just, um, you know, was everything that Christopher Nolan wanted from his performance in there. And thankfully, as Christopher Nolan did say, or on Heath Ledger completed all his work on it. There's not going to be anything that's not going to be there or yeah. removed. So, you know, you know, all the unimportant stuff that uh, the, us as fans, you know, would wonder later on, of course, like you don't think about that right away when you first heard, heard the news. It's just kind of as time goes on and the movie gets closer, you start you just can't help but wonder about that stuff. But, um, yeah, so let's talk about, you know, just 
let's celebrate his great performance as the Joker here and pay tribute to him. And first thing I want to talk about is, you know, our reaction when we first found out he was cast, because I remember this coming out of the blue <laughs> during, you know, the announcement, which I believe was uh, the time frame is a little fuzzy, whether it's early, late 2006, early 2007. I can't remember, but um, this is going to be, as I'm thinking about it, kind of since we were podcasting by the time, you know, the lead up to the dark night and when the movie came out, we didn't really get to talk about this stuff. So this is going to be kind of fun to talk about our experiences <laughs> as fans at the time, learning uh, the news as it broke about the dark night and Heath Ledger. So this is going to be interesting to hear your reactions, Dan, because we haven't really talked about it too much. Um, we've, over the course of the episodes, we talked about the movie and his Joker performance here and there, but the actual buildup and lead up to it is something we haven't really touched on. So it should be interesting to <laughs> hear your reactions, and I'm sure you you hear mine. But I just remember the first time I heard his name be announced that he was cast, I was thinking, "Wow!" Like first, well, first I was like, "Wait, who is he?" <laughs> the name did not sound familiar to me because I didn't really see any of his movies, and then I found out, "Oh, he's Ledger. He's." From a Night's Tale, like I think that was the only movie I saw him in, and then of course I saw the other movies he was known for. Like okay, so I know who he is, but the, wasn't too familiar with the name even back then. But this was in the point of from my fandom where I will admit to being a little ignorant. Where <laughs> uh, when I first heard, it, I was like, oh man, I really can't see that. I mean, it doesn't seem like the Joker in his other movies that he's been in. I you know, like I said, I only saw a Night's Tale, but seeing the other type of movies that he has been in, I was like, oh, I can't really see him pulling off the Joker. And this isn't a type of whatever they're going for with the Joker. I don't think it's going to be one that I had in mind or I hoped for uh, when we knew he was going to be the villain in The Dark Knight. And, you know, there was rumors of other actors. I think the big one, at least from who I wanted to see that I thought would be a good act or a good actor for the Joker would be Crispin Clever. I know he was the big rumored name out there. So at first I was like eh, a little bumped. He didn't get the part. But this is one of those things where I'm thankful, you know, looking back on it now, this was the casting that made me not judge any other casting from here on out because, boy, was I proven dead wrong <laughs> after I saw the movie. So this is, if anything, too, got to be thankful for Heath Ledger for proving that, you know, just because you don't necessarily – can see the performance in your head by an actor being cast and can't see him do that. You, you got to wait till you actually see the movie because you know, they, they can totally surprise you and just knock you off your feet with a fantastic performance like Heath Ledger did with the Joker. So first time I heard the announcement, I was, you know, kind of lukewarm on it. I'll probably just say disappointed because I just couldn't see him in the role, but I was thankfully <laughs> glad to be proven wrong on that. So, and as I said before, ever since that, I'll never judge a casting announcement until I actually see it. I mean, going back to Ben Affleck being cast as Batman and all the, you know, criticism that got Gal Gadot with the criticism she's got. And what we talked about on the podcast, I'll wait till I see more of their performance because, you know, I was proven wrong by Heath Ledger. So this is where all that started. And my attitude toward casting announcements was with Heath Ledger being cast as the Joker. So how about you, Dane? What was your first reaction when you found out that he was going to be the Joker? Uh, for me, it was kind of like, okay. I mean, I guess I, mm. I know like, like you said, uh, Crispin Glover, uh, I, I can't re really remember who else was, um, yeah, I know there's a few names out there, but Crispin Glover was the main one who yeah. I, who I wanted and you know, was out there the most that I can remember. Yeah. And like, 
yeah, like to me, it was just like, uh, I mean, I guess, but then, you know, when you start to think about it, it's, it's, it's more like, um, you know, like the 89 movie, there's kind of like a disconnect because I think, I think it was because, um, Jack Nicholson was an older guy Mm -hmm. and it, it didn't really have that connection. So like the more I thought about it, the more it was like, Oh, so they're they're gonna make they're they're not gonna make it like the '89 movie, um, where it's kind of an older actor uh, portraying the Joker. They're going with a younger actor, so I guess he kind of has that for him. And maybe this is gonna be a little more different, um, because up until that point, I thought they were just gonna do like um, what. Jack Nicholson did in the 89 movie where he was just going to be like this gangster and he was going to be like, you know, uh, like uh, an experienced criminal, you know, rather than what they, they did in the dark Knight. So for me, that's, I mean, I know it's kind of like, it doesn't really make sense, but like, that was kind of my thinking. Um, when he was cast or like that, Oh, okay. So they're going to go younger with this. I thought they were going to like get an experienced older actor to do it, but yeah, ju- just kind of lukewarm to it. Kind of surprised, you know? Mm. Yeah. And I got to say kind of like once he was cast in the lead up to the movie and kind of the more we heard about it, some rumblings, rumors, and some images that came out, it was a bumpy ride for me. Hard to believe <laughs> about, getting hyped up for the dark Knight. of course i was excited for it as a sequel to batman begins that i absolutely loved but i mean there was high expectations for this with you know the now classic ending to batman begins where gordon hands batman the joker card setting up for you know it's going to be a batman joker showdown and waiting yeah. three years to see that you know there was a lot of anticipation and hype for it so yeah and can but, i say one more thing no go for it um maybe i'm just looking back on this like uh, nostalgic Mm-hmm. Lee or whatever. I don't know if that's a word, but <laughs> um, this was a time before. I mean, I don't know if you feel the same way, but this is a, this was the time before where people were just simply fans of what they loved. You know, mm-hmm. it, it 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 wasn't, you know, like oh, you know how it is today with the with the Last Jedi or. Um, the force awakens where people are constantly criticizing every single like aspect of it, you know, or even like, the current superhero movies now for mainly DC, but sometimes even sometimes Marvel. Yeah. yeah. There's just a lot of this nitpicking, criticizing for every single thing. Yeah. yeah I know I, what you mean. And like, I think this, I mean, like I said, maybe, um, you know, just nostalgic for that period or that, that time. But like, I, th- I think this was a fan, this was a time where fans were just fans of their, fandom <laughs> you know, it wasn't constant criticism what how, how does how does ray know how to use a lightsaber how does she know how to use a stick you know how does uh, she know how to fight how does ray know how to use the force how does ray know how to fly the millennium falcon <laughs> you know every single thing mm-hmm. you know i i think this was more of a time where you know at least for me, um, where it was just, you know, oh, this this is kind of interesting. It's funny you say that because, like I said, this was kind of a bumpy ride for me in the lead up to the Dark Knight. 
I would say I learned a lot, (laughs) you know, for an anticipation from a movie with The Dark Knight because I was a lot more nitpicky and concerned about this movie, in particular the Joker going into it, than, you know, I've had been for probably almost any movie. Got to be honest, a lot of the stuff that was getting revealed, I was not a big fan of. Really? Yeah, that first, uh, first off, we were hearing like rumors, rumblings about how, you know, the Joker is not going to have, you know, he's not going to be all white. He's not going to be falling into a chemical. Is this going to be makeup? It's like, oh man, they're doing that. Like, oh, I don't know. And then the whole thing about him getting his scars to make the smile. And I remember reading a rumor, it didn't happen in the movie, but it was like his first encounter with Batman was going to be like, do a battering, like hit his mouth and it caused the scars to, you know, make the smile. you know, that didn't happen. I'm kind of glad it didn't. It made for a much better movie where you don't know how he got his scars and he tells those different stories, which is amazing. But just the idea of him having those scars, not having been full white, it being makeup, I was like, oh, man, I don't know. I don't, like, this does not sound like the Joker I want to see. And I remember, too, there was even rumors about him not being like fully white, but kind of just like a lighter skin tone to kind of have that more realistic feel, which, you know, everyone was thinking no one was going to go with and he was known for. Yeah. So that concerned me as well. And then when we got that first image of the Joker, do you remember which one it was? Like it was all part of that viral marketing. Was it the one where uh, Joker is behind the, the stained glass or the um, frosted glass? No, it was, you know what? Uh, see, I don't think so. I think that might've been the second one, but the, yeah, that was the second one, but that was one of the early ones. I know which one you're talking yeah. about, but the first one was, where it's that big close-up shot of his face, and you don't you don't even see his hair; it's just black background. You just see the close-up of his face. Really? When I, yeah, that was the first one. The 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 one on the disc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If if you if you got like the, I think it was the DVD, the two yeah. the two disc DVD. Yeah, I think the one they use on like the ultimate edition one, but yeah. all the villains on the cover. Yeah. yeah right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that was the first one, and when I saw it, it was like, it took me back. I'm like, ooh, that's the joke. <laughs> like, that's where that's where we're gonna get. I mean, the makeup's all like smeared up. The like the red, like that lips, like lipstick all smeared on his face and the yeah. scars. Like, I was not a fan of it. Like, oh man, I, I go, I better start preparing myself for you know being disappointed <laughs> with <laughs> what they're gonna do with the Joker. And yeah, so th- then even some leaked pictures came out, and like you said, there was that one that officially came out. It was kind of behind that glass and then more viral marketing images came out and part of me was like okay the make it looks better when you see it in context like a full image of him he has the green hair yeah i uh, still wasn't sold on the makeup just yet seeing you know his natural skin tones bugged me a little bit at first but i was feeling a little better about it when he was because he was displaying more qualities of the joker that i was familiar with and liked seeing and glad they were taking but it wasn't until we got an image of the Joker and I don't remember where it came from. If it was from a magazine or, you know, officially released online, but it was the one where it's like, you could see his full, his full suit, full face, everything. It's just where he's standing there. I'm not even sure what scene it is. It could be not sure if he's like outside when he's about to, you know, confront Batman on the bat pod or is that uh, Harvey Dent's fundraiser, but he's just standing there. He's got his, arms kind of open and you just you like he doesn't have a knife or weapon or anything but he's kind of hunched a little bit and he's just staring staring down at someone and when i saw that image okay okay that you know looks like a you know the joker i was hoping for because 
the suit was purple. You, you, those face where he had the makeup on, you tell it was definitely white, and you couldn't see any of his skin tone. So that, when I saw that name, I was like, okay, I, this is going to be you know a Joker visually anyway, where I could be down with. But it wasn't until we got that very uh, first, not the very first teaser, where it's just you know his voiceover and the Batman logo, but when we got the very first trailer, because really? because that was it for me. Um, I, I still think that that's one of the best teaser trailers. Yeah. <laughs> um, even though it's nothing but the, the Batman's, uh, <laughs> signal or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, for me, it was the, uh, it was the teaser trailer, just as the, the, the way he made his voice and, uh, the laugh at the end. Mm-hmm. So like, I was like, Oh, okay. Like, I, I, I'm pretty sure Heath Ledger has, has got this, you know, <laughs> has got it down. Yeah, that one, you know, I didn't hate it or anything. I just, yeah. it wasn't enough for me to go on. Like, you know, he had some good dialogue there, but and hearing his laugh sounded good. But <laughs> other than that, it wasn't enough for me to be completely sold on it. But it was that first uh, regular trailer where, you know, he does that monologue at the beginning, you know, taking dialogue from the interrogation room. And, but when we got our first, live action like footage of him like seeing it for the first time of him just sitting in the interrogation room where you know he's looking at that cop and you know the sequence of how the trailer was edited was different from the film but the dialogue where he says in the trailer evening commissioner and you just see that look on his face sitting down there like oh man this is that one shot pretty much sold me on it completely and everything else we got in the trailer just cemented him, you know, this could be something special. And again, like I said earlier, the buzz that was going around during this time about, you know, Gary Oldman was saying things and just certain, like the word of mouth on like websites and even from studios saying how we could be friend for something special. I saw it in that trailer, which really turned me around and got me even more excited for it. So like I said, it was a bumpy ride in the lead up. So uh, we actually got to see for me anyway, seeing the trailer or whatnot, but I eventually came around and this realizing how, <laughs> you know, foolishly it was to worry about that and even more so when we actually saw the film. But before I get to that, was, what was your experience like that, Dane? Was it a little more positive than my experience as the more information and pictures were coming out about Heath Ledger's Joker? Um, yeah, and I, I, I think it's or I think I have to admit that I, I was still on the high of Batman Begins. Mm. And how refreshing that was. Uh-huh. Not not just, you know, for Batman, but for, like, superheroes in general. Sure, Superhero yeah. films in general. Um, and, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think I was just still on that, like, okay, this filmmaker, Christopher Nolan, is going to be doing something different. Because there, uh, up to that point, there hadn't really been a superhero uh, movie like that where... It was, it told, t- told like a, a different kind of movie. It, 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 it wasn't a superhero movie. It wasn't like the Spider-Man movies where it's all color and it's all, you know, vibrant. And, you know, it's, it's tells the story of Peter Parker. This is something way, way, way different. And he's really going to take his time to um, do something different, you know. And yeah, I think I was just still on that high and like every single trailer and image and 
thing that we interview that we got it it was just like okay i'm i'm totally sold on this and i'm eating it up (laughs) (laughs) yeah so glad yours was a more happier experience than mine was instead of me worrying and you know can't take it off my fanboy glasses and not getting (laughs) what i wanted like i said this is it's an important movie for a lot of reasons for me it helped me shed away that type of thinking in the lead up to movies and not be so quickly to judge things and it's okay for things to be different than what you're used to because in certain things it could be better <laughs> than what you're expecting. That was the case with Heath Ledger's Joker in a lot of ways. So yeah. So by the time we got into 20 or man, I was going to say 2018 because <laughs> it's the 10 year anniversary, <laughs> but when we got to 2008 and we're getting closer to the movie. I was, I was hyped up and where I wanted to be about being super excited for it. The more footage we saw and other trailers that came out, I mean, um, it just looked amazing. And so Finally got to the theater and saw the whole movie. And boy, this is where I really felt stupid for doubting or having worry <laughs> after I saw and see the com- the complete performance by Heath Ledger of Joker. And boy, talking about living up to the hype, the buzz, and even I will say this is the Dark Knight and Heath Ledger Joker performance might be one of the great- greatest payoffs in movie history from that great tease I mentioned earlier in Batman Begins how much hype that created and excitement for a Batman Joker story in the sequel and to have the Dark Knight and his joke, Heath Ledger's Joker performance probably surpass expectations for what that could be. That, that's got to be one of the biggest payoffs ever <laughs> for a, a setup in a movie series. So, man, yeah, just um, every moment he was on screen, you just wanted more and not this is one of the things where I don't want it to sound like where whenever we didn't get Heath Ledger's Joker on screen, I wasn't invested in the rest of the movie or, or I wasn't looking at or thinking to myself, oh, come on, when are we going to get more Joker? Because the rest of the movie was pretty engaging and awesome in its own right. But when we got the Joker stuff, it just took it to another level. And you know, there's a lot. Every scene he was in is just amazing. You cannot... Like if you're watching a movie and start, maybe you're pressed for time, you're going to skip certain forward to certain moments here or there. You will not forward or skip any scene with the Joker in this movie. It's all just phenomenal and for different ra- different ways too, depending on the scene and the moment. But I just remember sitting in that theater thinking, man, I'm seeing something special here with his performance. And, you know, even before there was, like I said, there was a buzz and then even Oscar buzz going around and, I had that feeling too as I was watching it and after it was over just thinking, man, he has to win <laughs> every award for this performance. It's just so deserving. And that feeling I got watching it is what I was hoping to have as a Batman fan. And one that was so rare, like you said, Batman Begins ushered this new great era of Batman movies, a refreshing take on the character and getting a lot right. And even more, I think they did that even more so with The Dark Knight. That feeling of seeing why I love the Joker and his relationship to Batman on screen is being, or not even on screen, but just in general, why I love that dynamic so much. It's being shown to me on screen and now everyone else can see like the mainstream audience can see why this character of the Joker is the greatest villain of all time is so special. Why him and Batman are the perfect enemies for each other. It just, they nailed all that. And Heath Ledger's performance, you know, really sold it. So, um, yeah, I just, such a great feeling after the movie when it was over just on such a high of what we got and at the same time too it was certain points in the movie we just couldn't help but feel sad that 
you know, we're seeing this great performance by a great actor for one of the greatest fictional characters ever, that he's not here right now. And that, you know, it's had a little somber effect on certain scenes. I mean, I said this before the, the scene at the very end where Joker tells Batman, we're destined to do this forever. It's just, uh, you can't help, but take a, you know, a gut punch right there, knowing that that's no longer possible. So well, I was excited as I was when after seeing the movie, it was a little, you know, somberness to it as well, knowing that, you know, Heath Ledger is no longer with us. And, you know, as I said before, isn't can't, you know, receive his well-deserved accolades that he's getting for, for this role as he so well-deserved. So it was kind of a little bittersweet type moment after the first viewing, but yeah, I'm sure your experience is going to be pretty similar to mine, Dane, as far as your takeaway from Heath Ledger's performance when you saw the final movie. Yeah, for me, it was it was more, I don't know, like almost scary because you didn't really know what he was going to do next. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think it's only like twenty minutes into the movie, and he. Um, well, I mean, first we have the the whole, you know, mob bank thing scene, and you know, like, like oh, you know, how is he going to get away? How is he going to, you know, get all the money? And he drives a school bus into the into the <laughs> um, into the bank, and he somehow timed it where he would pull in, you know, right into the a convoy of school buses, a bus of buses, and it's it, it's just sort of that unpredictability, you know, like and like the next scene he's in is, um, you know, he's talking to all the the the, the mob guys, right, and he yep. kills the guy with the pencil, like and. To me, like, I know we're going to get to this later, but to me, that's one of the best scenes because he kind of goes on this monologue. He doesn't seem threatening at all to these guys. And then he he kills a guy with a pencil, you know, yeah. and it's <laughs> it's just sort of that, that surprising, mm-hmm. you know, moment. It's, it's, um, and every time he was on scene, it's like, okay, what's he going to do? And, you know, to, to me, it kind of all boils or... It kind of like all, you know, goes towards that scene, that interrogation scene, where he kind of goes head uh, face to face with Batman, and then he tricks him in the end, where he sends Batman after Harvey Dent rather than Rachel. And to me, that's the, you know that's the peak of the movie, and everything after that is, yep. you know, the the sort of I guess results of that moment. And it's, for me, I think what makes Heath Ledger's performance so great or what, it, or what made it so great, what the first time I saw it was that it, it was written in a way where you didn't know what he was going he, he to do next. And he could have done anything. You know, he, he, he could have just walked out of that meeting, but he decided to kill a guy with a pencil, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with... Um, I forget the guy's name. Uh, the 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 um, you know when they're playing pool and uh, oh gamble yeah gamble yeah yeah and uh, you know what's he gonna do at the end of that scene? He's gonna have the two guys fight each other to take a spot in his yeah. gang. You know it's the half like, broken pool stick. Yeah yeah, yeah. And it's it's so unpredictable. You know so for me that's what really kind of wowed me you know it's just mm-hmm. he didn't really know what he was doing he's he, he was going to do 
And, totally. it, and even if you did, it was something completely different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know. I mean, the character was honestly well written to, you know, for Heath Ledger to have a great performance, but even the stuff like that's not just what he's saying. It's what he's doing to his mannerisms help make this performance of the Joker so great. And there's certain things like we know he did, you know, off the cup where it wasn't in the script where, you know, it was an improv type thing where uh, I believe when one of the famous ones I always loved is when he's in prison and uh, the mayor makes Gordon a commissioner and everyone's clapping. And then you see <laughs> the Joker clapping in the cell. I mean, that's so perfect. It's so Joker. I, I believe that's, but one where Heath Ledger just did right on the spot there where he decided to add that in. It's just perfect. And little things like where he's, uh, Gordon's interrogating him first and he's asking him, where's Danny? He goes, me? Like, I've been here. And he just lifts his hands up, <laughs> showing that he's handcuffed. And just those mannerisms, the way he walked, how he delivered his lines, just help make it so, so unique and so special and just so Joker. <laughs> That's what we wanted. Yeah. So, yeah, just... You know, the little ticks that we had, the way, you know, he kind of smacked his lips when he talked and the way he would tell, I mentioned or hinted a little bit earlier, but the way he told the stories of how he got his cars, once to Gamble and then one to Rachel, just the way Heath Ledger delivers those stories, like you almost, you know, the Joker's evil, but you buy into his story and almost feel sorry for him a little bit the way he says it. The one that sticks out to me is when he's telling Rachel about his wife and he tells him, you know, to make her happy, he did that to himself. He just says, like she can't even stand the sight of me. Like you really like feel bad for her in that spot of like he tried to do this thing for his wife to make her feel better and she hates him for it and all that. So just brilliant acting and by Heath Ledger there to, you know, go off of a fantastic script for the Joker. So all together making it for, you know, such amazing, amazing scenes and performance in general. And, you know, like I said before, he well deservedly won an Oscar for this. I think almost every award that had a best supporting actor nomination in there, which is well deserved. And, you know, I'll never, you know, take it for granted how cool it is that we have a best actor winner portraying, you know, a comic book character like the Joker. To me, there's just something still really cool and special about that, that, that the Joker as a character has gotten an Academy award, but you know, Keith Ledger has it, but obviously, he won the award, but the fact that it was for the Joker, because it just, to me, it just validates. I mean, it's not that I was looking for validation or anything, but it's just great to see where a character that we all grew up loving so much. We know is special. We know is a unique, complex, uh, intriguing character that we've enjoyed reading about in comics and seeing in TV shows in the 89 movie for, you know, for years and generations. And now the reasons why we all knew he was a great character is being recognized by, you know, you know, the highest honor in film. And all it's all thanks to Heath Ledger and what he did for the character, making everyone see why the character of the Joker is so special. So to me, I, I'll never lose sight of how cool and special that is for, you know, both Heath Ledger for what an outstanding job he did for bringing the Joker to life that, you know, in the best way possible and that everyone was able to recognize. So I'll, I'll always love that aspect of it. I don't know if we'll ever see that again. Hopefully, because, you know, we just had the Oscar nominations come out this week. And I was a little disappointed that. Oh, no, Tim. Don't bring this up now. I just, well, <laughs> it ties in with it because, you know, Dark Knight set the precedent where, yeah. you know, that didn't get nominated for Best Picture. So they added more categories. And Keith Ledger, you know, won Best Actor, obviously. And hopefully that would pave the way for more. And I just thought this year's. 
we've had some good candidates for more movies to you know be in the vein of you know Heath Ledger's Joker performance in The Dark Knight, like movies like Logan, with and Wonder Woman even. So the fact that those didn't get recognized, I mean Logan got a best screenplay adaption, which is awesome. But what are you talking also, about? Wonder Woman got zero. I know, which is they had zero, Tim. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's another <laughs> tangent we can go on. But to me, I think if you have a cultural impact on a a film has a cultural impact like Wonder Woman did for this year. Uh, I think it should be recognized for a Best Picture nomination. Even we know it's probably not going to win, but just to be recognized that it was a great movie, a big hit, and like I said, a cultural almost phenomenon that had happened, which you know was rare when that happens for a year with movies, and I felt it's a disappointment that it didn't get recognized at that. So yeah, not the Dark for, Knight is not not even for the smaller ones like costume yeah. design or cinematography or exactly writing or whatever, and and Gal Gadot not getting nominated for uh, best actress or Patty know, Jenkins for best director. Patty I really Jenkins, thought she might have gotten it. You know, best did, didn't she also write it? Um, did she have a story credit? I don't think I, she did. I, oh. Oh, she I could just be has wrong. a directing credit? Yeah, I might be wrong, but I'll have to double check. Why? So, yeah, that's why that's no... I'm disappointed where Dark Knight <laughs> yeah. is still, you know, the high point for comic book movies in those <laughs> in those big categories. But speaking of which, um I saw the Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Um it should have been nominated for uh Best Picture. <laughs> I've heard that from it other people. Have. I haven't um, seen it. But. And I will say, Tim, I hate to I hate to tell you, Tim, but the it, it had the better Harrison Ford appearance. Well, really, yeah. I don't know about that, but <laughs> it had the better Harrison Ford appearance. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, see, I haven't seen it, so I can't even argue. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's it's a great movie, um, and I hate to break your heart again, Tim. But uh, why is that? <laughs> Blade Runner twenty forty nine was uh, the best movie last year that I saw. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> so even even though my initial disappointment with the Last Jedi when we did our podcast review, I've come full eighty like full one eighty on that and loving it now. That still makes me upset that you have another movie higher than Last Jedi. So. <laughs> <laughs> well. I think, Tim, that this is the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> uh, but anyway, back to our tribute yeah. to Heath Ledger. So I guess the last thing I want to touch on is just favorite moments and scenes in the movie. And we got a few responses from people on Twitter that I want to get to. And, you know, easily I can go to the interrogation scene. And that is my favorite sequence of the movie. I talked about that sequence to death so <laughs> i won't go into full detail here but again it's just everything i love about batman and the joker is in case in that one scene it's just perfect and probably my favorite moment of the joker is in that scene where batman's punching him and he's just laughing his head off and my favorite dialogue of the whole movie is when he says you have nothing nothing to threaten me with with all your strength i mean that thing rings more true to the power that joker has over batman and that moment and in other encounters that they had in the comics and other stories, that's why his, he's his greatest enemy right there. It's just perfect. So perfect. But, in, you know, just, just to be a little different for this one, like I said, I'm always going to the interrogation scene is my favorite. I'm going to go to the one you mentioned earlier, Dane, about the first 
it's not technically the first moment we see him, but it's the first time we see him in his full getup costume, makeup and all is when he encounters all the mob bosses. I mean, it just starts out perfectly where he gives, you know, a sarcastic laugh. It's not the typical maniacal, crazy Joker laugh. It's just that, aha, aha, ooh, ha you know, just, you know, mocking all the gangsters. I just love how he enters in like that. He does the magic trick to get their attention. And he just calls everybody out there, you know, <laughs> of how they're afraid of Batman. And what, like, I like how he puts your group therapy sessions in broad daylight. And just more great performance or a sequence that shows how great Heath Ledger's performance is here in a little certain moments. I like it, you know, when one of those small little things here that I like is when Gamble keeps calling him a freak. That's like the one thing Joker kind of takes seriously where he doesn't believe himself as a freak. He doesn't give any, you know, comeback or sarcastic remark to that. He kind of takes it really personal. First time Gamble says it, he just kind of gives like a, glance at him he doesn't acknowledge it he just moves on in his conversation or for what he wants to tell the mob bosses and then when it comes up again i just like how he just you could tell he's angered by that and just frustrated when he hears the word freak where he just goes i'm not a freak like i'm not you know he could easily like, the way he plays off and says that line you just know it really irks him because he's not doing anything over the top or saying a comeback to that you just know it really affects him so that's a little small piece of his performance that I always liked. And then just what he calls out loud about being the squealer. This is one of those other moments of, you know, his mannerisms that really makes, you know, his performance so good when he goes, uh, you know, I know the, like, as for the television and his plan, like, I know the squealers when I see him and like, he doesn't say anything. He just points, like put, makes a hand gesture and points at the TV and has this look on his face. Like, yeah, I'm looking at you. And then loud just, turns off the a broadcast of, from his plane. So that sequence is, is a, for, even though it's, like I said, not the first time we see him, but for the most part, it's a great introduction to the character and to what we're going to see throughout the course of the film. So I think I got to give that sequence a lot of love there. So other than the interrogation scene, which is perfect, I'll go with the first encounter with the mob bosses. So that would be my pick. What about you, Dean? What's another scene that stands out to you as one of his best? Um, well, you took mine, Tim. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> <No>. figured. <laughs> um, for me, in the end, when I look back on Heath, uh, Heath Ledger's performance as Joker, um, I think the, the, the thing that I come away with is that he's best, and it, 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 just, it just shows how great of an actor he is. It's... His performance is best when he's not doing anything. He's just talking. Mm. You know, it's not CGI'd up. It's not some CGI set. He he doesn't have some fantastical makeup on. He doesn't have this big wardrobe. He, you know, and it's something that I miss specifically the CGI stuff. You know, it's it's no, there's no CGI. There's nothing. He's just sitting in a room talking, like like the interrogation scene. Um, but to me, it's it's the um, Harvey Dent scene when Har- Harvey's in the hospital. Mm, yeah, it's a good and one. He somehow sneaks in in that <laughs> in that nurse's outfit, mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's he's imparting to Harvey his philosophy on life, and he he's like I said, he's not doing anything. He has he he kind of does have a weird 
outfit on, but I mean, how else was, was he going to sneak this hospital, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and it's just him imparting his philosophy on life. And it's, it's, there, there's no action going on in it. It's, the, he, he's the only person in the scene. Harvey's just there as a reactionary character. Um, nothing's really going on. And I think that's when Heath Ledger really shines. It's not the big action scenes. Because it can't. Because, you know, Joker is this gangly guy. He's not a fighter. Um, he can't go up against Batman. And, you know, the, and I think Heath Ledger really understood that. And it's these scenes where he's not doing anything. Uh, also, the scene where he's hanging upside down after, you know, uh, Batman... Ha- brings out his secret uh blades or whatever um you know he's just hanging up upside down and he's just again he's just monologuing about how he sees the world and i think that's what heath ledger got right and i think you know looking at jared leto's performance it's like that's what's missing you know and i know he's trying to trying to do that and i know he's trying to um, do what Heath Ledger did, but Heath Ledger already did it, and he did it better, and that's kind of the problem with that I have with uh, Jared Leto's Jared Leto's Joker. And speaking of which, um, he is in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and oh, that's it's, right, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like he's so good in that movie. He's so good, you know. It's it's a character role. It's it's you know he 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 does it's it's in the same location all, all like three of his scenes and he's so good in that movie and it's kind of like what happened between between that and uh suicide squad <laughs> you know it's like it's like what happened but you know it, in the end i think heath ledger is i i'm going to remember him you know his performance as the joker where he's not really doing anything. He's just talking. And he's... It, it, it's one of those things where he goes on and on and on and on and on about his ideas. And then in, in the end, you realize, like, hey, I actually learned something about the Joker mm-hmm. that I didn't know before. Or at least his Joker. Um, and I think that's what I'm going to take away from his performance. So so yeah. so I'd probably say the, um, the the scene with Harvey in the hospital. Yeah, that's a great one. You, you nailed it. I mean, it's, I mean, like you said, if he's not doing anything, he's just talking. It still just captivates you, and you're just entranced with his performance. So, yeah. yeah, good choice there. So yeah, like I said, we got some responses on Twitter for uh, the people on there. What the, some of their favorite Joker moments or scenes were from The Dark Knight. And first up, we got from Always Hold On to Smallville at Always Smallville. He goes, the video torture scene was his best moment, in my opinion. One of the only times I've actually been scared of the Joker. Look at me. Him changing gears between silly and threatening, too. Brilliant. That's the Joker. And, yeah, that's a great call out, too. It's a short sequence. We've barely even seen him. But he nails it right here. Always Smallville does by saying, you know, you're able, you're frightened at the Joker, but at the same time, he's still playful too. the way he, you know, like uh, carries the bat, that cow, the fake Batman, he like shakes it. He's like, Oh, and then he's like, he says that scream. He goes, look at me. You're I mean, you're terrified there. So that's a great, I think underrated scene too. It's short, 
but it really drives home how threatening the Joker is. So great call on that one. And then Jim Bob Squarepants at Vintage GT says, <laughs> I like that name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he goes, there are so many. He was spellbinding. This one probably takes it for me when he, or the one that probably takes it for me is when he infiltrates Bruce Wayne's penthouse. He is genuinely scary in that scene. It's hard to pick one as I love every scene he's in, but this one stays with me the most, I think. And then Mark, of course, Mark Lemke at Der Lemke, or I should say Der underscore Lemke is his exact Twitter handle. Yeah. Um, he goes where he says, what doesn't kill you makes you stranger. Also the scene where he has the man hostage and yells, look at me. I felt frightened. He felt like a true threat. And then uh, Salman Sid Siddiqui, hope I'm saying that right, at Salman 128. Um, for me, it was when Batman fell from the bat pod after swerving around the Joker. Then one of his goons gets electrocuted trying to remove the cow, and Joker has a maniacal laugh and starts kicking him. Really showed how twisted he was. Yeah, that's another you know small sequence, but I love it every time. <laughs> Just the Joker getting out of his own goon. That's another thing I don't know if was you know improv or if it was in the script or not. And he it spits seems on like, him too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> he goes. Up, up, up. Yeah. <laughs> Because it seems like something that would be improv by Heath Ledger by some of the other stuff I mentioned. I wouldn't be surprised if it was, but whether it was or wasn't, it was a great moment, too, for the Joker. And then Rob Myers at Drummer Rob 10 says, I feel that you and I are destined to do this forever. Yeah. I mean, that line, there's so much to love about that line. And just, you know, again, sad that we never, you know, got to see more of that come to fruition. And then finally, uh, Jordan at Batfan Jordan, which is you know it's kind of strange reading a tweet from him too. <laughs> we usually just get emails from Jordan, but glad, glad he chimed in here with his thoughts. He goes, every time Heath was on screen was breathtaking. However, I gotta go with the scene with the mob. Why so serious? Scene with Gamble, the interrogation scene with Batman, and the scene at the hospital with Two Face as my favorites. So yeah, thank you everyone for chiming in and sharing your thoughts as we pay tribute to Heath Ledger here. What I liked about the responses we got, so many different ones you can go with, and all of them are great for <laughs> different reasons. And again, it's just a testament to what a truly legendary, iconic performance that Heath Ledger gave us for the Joker. So, yeah, being that it's now 10 years since he passed away, it just felt right that we had to honor his great performance and pay tribute to him. So glad we were able to do that. And, you know, it's a big year for The Dark Knight. It's going to be its 10 year anniversary as well in July. So kind of want to save more of a discussion for the actual movie in general uh probably around july when we get closer to the 10-year anniversary because you know like i said earlier we never really got a chance to <laughs> talk about it in full and i think a 10-year anniversary would be the perfect opportunity to do that so look forward to that later but we wanted to make sure we you know pay tribute to heath ledger at this time because it's you know so well deserved as we documented it in this discussion in this discussion how great his performance was and will never ever be forgotten all right, so yeah, that's it for a featured topic. That was a good featured topic, Tim. Yeah, it was. You know, sadly the circumstances yeah. <laughs> of what oh, brought yeah. it up, but again, it's just great. Like I said, talking about how awesome that yeah. performance is. So thank you, Dave. Um, so yeah, we can get onto our news. Uh, first piece of news is that um, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein are going to direct the Flashpoint movie. It's weird how they're still going going through with this. Yeah, I mean, I guess they're pretty dead set on making Flash's movie be Flashpoint, which, you yeah. know, uh, I said this before. I'd love to see a Flashpoint movie at some point, but not right now. Yeah. <laughs> so 
we'll see. I mean, again, hopefully these two will stick. Flash has already went to or went through two different directors already. So, and these guys, I think, more recently, they're mainly known for writing Spider-Man: Homecoming. So, uh, just we'll see what they do with directing a you know a big budget, big superhero movie, but. They they written Spider Man well <laughs> because Spider Man Homecoming was really good. So hopefully they can bring that you know to as directors to the Flash movie. So kind of I'm kind of mixed where you know I'm glad it's still happening and still on the table. It's moving into production, but again, still think it might be a little too early for to be doing Flashpoint now. But we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I know you're not going to be too excited about it. <laughs> like you said, it it's too soon. Yeah. Well, maybe they're trying to reset their universe after, yeah, after Justice is. League, and you know, you're gonna use the Flashpoint movie to do that. I mean, you don't need a, you don't need a whole movie to do that. You, exactly. you could just be like, okay, now this person is gonna play Batman. You know, I know. <laughs> Whatever. Like the whole point of this movie better not be based to reset the whole thing that better not be its main purpose that would be a big mistake in my opinion yeah just have it do it because you want to tell a really cool story not to reset things (laughs) (laughs) um our second piece of news is that uh justice league is going to release on digital uh, february 13th so in about two weeks three weeks um and it's going to be on Blu-ray March 13th, so a whole month later, Tim. And uh, I know you have something <laughs> to say about it, so uh, why don't you say it? Why do you do this, Warner Brothers? Why? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I already don't like the big gaps. and I think you've heard me rant about this before between digital and Blu-ray. I, mean, I could live with a two-week gap like the Disney stuff and the Marvel films usually do. But a whole month, I mean, before with Warner Brothers, it used to be like three weeks, which I thought was pushing it. But a whole month to wait for it? Like, come on. <laughs> I know they probably wanted to increase the sales for the digital and all that. But that's just way too long. And again, especially if you're going to package the digital code with the Blu-ray, like I can't justify buying it early when I know I'm going to get it a month earlier on the Blu-ray disc, which I still prefer using and a digital code with that too. So I still bugs me that they wait this long and it seems to be getting longer and longer with each big film. So yeah, it would have been nice if the Blu-ray came out in February. I mean, be right around the corner and I'd be excited to to have it again, but I got to wait another month for that. So that was really disappointing. And it looks like the special features on it's going to be your standard fare documentaries and they're making a big deal about two bonus Superman sequences, or I don't know if it's just two, but they say more bonus Superman scenes not included in theaters, but it's just going to be like a deleted scene. It's not going to be incorporated into the movie or anything. Yeah. And from what I'm hearing, and it's only going to be like two minutes long total, so it's yeah. not going to be anything substantial. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. So, like, I'm like, like, what's really the point? I mean, what what, what is he doing it? You know, does he, like, I don't know. Is it him putting on the cape? I, I think so. I think there's like, one shot they showed. He's back at his ship. Yeah. Like in the snow. Well, yeah. well, so that's, it looks like it was from the shot from man of steel, but again, the ship was, you know, it's like low. It's like in metropolis words, you know, being confiscated by the government. So right. it wouldn't be in the snow again, but maybe it just looks similar. So and I guess we'll have to wait and see. Are they still doing the, the, uh, Zack Snyder cut or no. are those people still, uh, uh, petitioning or whatever, Warner Pe- Brothers. Petition's still there. I know a few weeks ago they actually went like 
a handful of people went to Warner Brothers Studios to really? you know, kind of protest <laughs> or petition it. But did it work? I, no, because uh, okay. it doesn't exist. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I mean, because I mean, like you figure um, his family tragedy ha- mm-hmm. happened before they were done shooting, right? Or at least in the midst still of post production, where it was like they were finishing scenes and all that, or a cut. But, like yeah, a exactly. Really rough cut of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those scenes aren't even finished. That there was yeah. a Snyder cut. I mean, it'd be like a a big undertaking if they were to do it, which I don't think Warner Brothers is going to do and pour any more money into a movie yeah. where they lost stuff money on. So it ain't happening. And they're not going to do like a George Lucas um, special editions. <laughs> I don't think so. Oh. Which I was kind of surprised we're not getting an extended edition of this, which I wouldn't mind seeing. You know, they should do that with um, the new Star Wars films. Uh, I would love that. Like a, like a three hour, like like what they did with uh, Lord of the Rings. Like yeah, do like a three three four hour cut of it. Yeah, I've been championing that for so long. Even yeah. for the old Star Wars movies, I would love that. <laughs> we got a little bit with the special editions, but I know there's more they can add. Yeah, but hopefully they get a Zack Snyder cut. Like I mean, I guess like if they're willing to go to to go to War- the, the Warner Brothers Studios, you know and hold signs out there <laughs> hopefully they get it yeah well i want to get my hopes up sorry yeah. but <laughs> just speaking the truth i wonder why they want that they, they think it's going to be better but from what i've heard about it i don't think it will be yeah considering how it's going to how they handle superman where i think it's mainly evil for a lot more of the film i mean yeah. there might be some cool stuff in there but yeah i wouldn't change how they handle superman in this one i thought the way yeah. they did superman was really good for the most part well, anyway, um, our last piece of news is uh, Scott Snyder is going to take over the main Justice League comic. About freaking time, I'll say that. <laughs> because <laughs> Not just because it's Scott Snyder taking over, but the main Justice League comic has needed a real big shot in the arm since Rebirth. You know, I, I dropped the title after the first arc. I, mean, I heard it got a little better, but not enough to warrant me to pick it back up. But still Scott Snyder on the title, I'm definitely going to get invested in it again and see how it is. And but I will say um, a little mixed on the announcement they made about it so far um, because, you know, the details is once Dark Knight's Metal ends in March, um, there's going to be a four issue weekly miniseries that starts on May 9th. It's going to be called Justice League. No justice. It's going to be written by Scott Snyder, James Tinney in the fourth and Joshua Williamson with art by Francis Manipal, which if anything, <laughs> if the stories aren't good, it's going to look beautiful because Francis Manipal is such a good artist and it's going to be. It's going to be weird. It's going to be like different members of the Justice League split up into like fragments of the teams where you got Batman with his own team, Superman with his own team, Wonder Woman. And it's going to be a mix of like heroes and villains in there. I think Harley's going to be a part of it. And so it's just going to be like, you know, a mixture of different various DC characters, which I'm not 100% sold on because it just seems a little too gimmicky in some we've seen before. I mean, it's a little, it is different than Forever Evil, but that whole point of the bad guys becoming the good guys or working with the good guys kind of seems a little recent that we've been there, done that a little bit to me. I'm sure Scott will make it his own and have it be a completely different story because the thing is uh, the synopsis where Brainiac comes to, you know, tell the justice leaguers, you know, there's a main threat coming when you need, you know, more than what you already got, that type of thing. And so I'm just curious to see what the actual story is going to be and how it all plays out with these different characters but then once that No Justice miniseries ends, uh, the articles 
from IGN, they're the ones who broke the story. They said that it's going to set the stage for a family of Justice League comics starting in June. And the flagship would be written by Scott Snyder. Then others would be by James Tinian, Joshua Williamson, and more. So I just, I don't know, I'm excited if it was just Scott Snyder taking on the main Justice League title. That's cool. But I'm not sure about more Justice League, like family books that I'm just hoping it's not going to be you know, one Justice League with Batman's team, another Justice League with Superman's team, another Justice League with Wonder Woman's team. Those are going to be the different books. I just want a main Justice League book with all the core members that I know and love written by Scott Snyder. That's what I'm hoping for. Hopefully that will be the case for the main title, but I'm a little nervous that that might not be depending on, you know, judging from the description we got for no justice. And again, like I've said the last episode, I haven't been the biggest fan of of Dark Knight's metal. So I've, Kind of got to have a wait and see approach to see how that ends and how that leads into this new story for Justice League. So while I'm excited for Scott Snyder taking on the main Justice League book, I'm just a little you know, nervous about what it's going to be and how different it's going to be from a Justice League book that I was hoping for. So we'll see. If anything, like I said before, it's just great that it's getting some much needed new blood and such a great writer like Scott Snyder being on board still has me excited enough where I'm going to at least check it out once it starts. So uh, we'll just have to wait and see if it delivers. Well, like you said, at least it'll look pretty. Yeah, <laughs> at the very least. Speaking of which, I had no idea. I, I told you about this earlier. I had no idea that Jock worked on uh, well, The Last Jedi. Yeah, that surprised totally me when surprised you texted me. me. That. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like... Well, uh, according to the interview, like he, uh, he 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 was in the costume design team. He worked on it for nine months at at Pinewood Studios. And uh, yeah, have- he he according to him, he um, he did the new Praetorian Guards. Um. Uh, like like I said, Leia's um, I don't know what you call it, cloak, shawl. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the one that she, uh, Carrie Fisher's wearing in the Vanity Fair articles. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and he said a Luke's costume at the oh, end, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. The black one, because they originally just, they, they were just going to have Luke wearing what he, he wore in the beginning. But then mm-hmm. I guess Jock took a shot at it and made, made that. And like I was telling you, the, uh, apparently none of the design team had any idea what was going to be in the movie until they actually saw the movie, yeah. <laughs> which is so weird to me. It's like they, they didn't know what, which, which things that they worked on made it into the movie. So like, uh, he, he helped design, uh, DJ, um, his outfit, uh, Rose, Rose's outfit. Um, some of the spaceships, you know, just stuff like that. So yeah, it's to- totally surprising. And, no wonder he's not working on DC. He got something better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to top Star Wars, that's for sure. Yeah. Actual Star Wars movie. Yeah. Yeah, like let's say like I told you, next time I see the movie I have to see if his name if I see his name in the credits. But now I'm thinking about it. I haven't finished through the whole art book of The Last Jedi yet, but now I yeah. just flip through it to see if I see his name on any of those designs that you mentioned to see if his artwork made it to that book. That'd be cool yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah, totally surprised me. I was like, wait, wait, dude, you, you worked on Star Wars? <laughs> yeah, just a, another great feather to put in his cat, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, 
Uh, now we can move on to our conversation with Alex slash listener feedback. And we do have an email from Jordan. Uh, so, Tim, do you want to read it? Yep. Oh, wait, before be, before we get to that, um, you know, I follow Jordan on Twitter. Um, he tweets a lot about Smallville. And, uh, <laughs> uh, Hence Clark why and, our title is so appropriate. Yeah. Uh, Clark and uh, Alana. Was that relationship really written that well? Uh, <laughs> I'll just say it had its moments, but okay, yeah, you've heard me talk about that a while, and yeah, I don't want to, you know, upset Jordan just right before we're oh, gonna no, read no. the of course, so. not. of course not. I, I was just, I, I, I wasn't trying to bash it or anything. I was just wondering, you know, because I've like I've said a thousand times on this podcast. I've only seen the pilot of <laughs> And it seems well, like Clark falls in love with the one woman that he can't be with because she's wearing a a kryptonite necklace. So Well it sounds to me, Dane, that you need to watch the whole series. <laughs> <laughs> is it on is it on Netflix? Is it on Hulu? It's, it's on Hulu, yes. No, it is. Okay, I gotta so, give it a shot. I gotta give it yeah. a shot then. At least watch more than the pilot. At least make it a little further. <laughs> Yeah, well, I I I, I kind of wanted to see the um, Christopher Reeve ones episodes. Yeah, he was in awesome. it, right? Yeah. Who who does he uh, play? Uh, he, yeah, he plays like a like a, a scientist researcher of uh, who. You, it's just been a while since I've seen yeah. it, but he discovers the kind of pretty much where Clark is from from Krypton and all that, and oh. you know, looking out to the stars and putting things together. And he kind of reveals more about Clark's history from Krypton uh, pretty early on in season two. And then he comes back in season three. So, hmm. And if I'm remembering correctly, didn't uh, Christopher Reeve pass away around no, that not, time? Not too long after that. I think oh. a year after season three, something like that. Oh, okay. But yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not bashing Alex. I mean, not Alex. Uh, Jordan's uh, love of that show smallville but i was just wondering <laughs> yeah like i say time to find out for yourself i say <laughs> <laughs> but jordan sends in an email as always and says hey tim and dane i love the new podcast name lol i feel honored i have to say the name definitely sums me up well thanks guys you know i wasn't over the moon about dunkirk i'm saying this as a huge christopher nolan fan he's my favorite director I've seen every one of his feature films since Memento and absolutely love them all, with The Dark Knight Rises being my favorite movie of all time up until Dunk- up until Dunkirk. I like Dunkirk. Okay, and I might- okay. Maybe I am <laughs> bashing his love of Smallville. <laughs> no, uh, oh, we're going to get into a Dunkirk-Smallville match right here. <laughs> because I like Dunkirk, and I might have been singing its praises had it been made by anyone other than Nolan, but I just expect greatness from him. And this fell short of that for me. It's incredible from a visual standpoint, and I think it really is unique in how it captures the tension of the events taking place. However, I feel that Nolan prioritized spectacle over story with this film. I understand what he was going for with the lack of dialogue, but it hurt the movie in my opinion. I had trouble getting invested in the characters or following the story. It wasn't as compelling, nor did it have the emotional impact on me as Nolan's previous films. It's ironic that this might that this may wind up being the first movie for which Nolan wins an Oscar, something I've been wanting for him for a long time, yet it's my least favorite of his films. 
Yeah, I, I, I think it was... I think Nolan going into this movie just assumed that you knew what happened in Dunkirk. You know, rather than explaining the context behind it. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's more like he... Maybe it was made for a British audience, you know, where I'm sure they know a lot more um, about what what happened at Dunkirk rather than, you know, a, an American audience or whoever else where it's like he's not going to take the time to explain every single thing that happened before and, you know, what, you know, is going on. I think he mm-hmm. just assumes you, that you know what happened. Yeah, and I get where Jordan's coming from here. How it, it won't work for everybody, and it didn't really, yeah. you know, work for him altogether. But at the same time, I understand the opposite too. What Nolan was going for, and how it's kind of like he just dropped a cameraman into the battle of Dunkirk without anyone knowing. You're just filming what was going on and their reaction. Sense why right. there isn't a lot of dialogue and like that. And I can appreciate that too, which is why I really enjoyed it. It was something different. In the style that Nolan did for this film, which I appreciated, so it's a bit um, like um, it's a bit like Star Wars, um, A New Hope, right? It, you, <laughs> you get a little bit of text, you get a little bit of text, but then you know you're right in the middle of a battle, you know? <laughs> yeah, and that I guess how it starts, I guess, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense that way. But Jordan continued saying, "I can't tell whose apartment Gordon and Blake are in when watching Bane reading the speech either." Yeah, we're still stuck on that one too. We'll see if we figure it out by the time that sequence is over. It's it's the big mystery of Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, if we can't figure that out during our minute by minute commentary, it would be all for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we must get to the bottom of it. Um, he goes, "I love listening to your 2017 DC year in review. I think 2017 was one of the best years in my lifetime when it comes to DC. Quite honestly, my pick for best writer goes to no surprise here, Tom King." You'll understand why as his work is going to continue popping up in other categories, but I'll explain here what I love about his writing so much here. His run has left like a dream or his run has felt like a dream come true for me. It's been almost everything I could have possibly asked for when it comes to Batman comics. Specifically speaking to 2017, he started the year off with rooftops, which was a beautiful love letter to the Batcat relationship. I declared it my favorite comic story of all time at that time. I wasn't sure anything would ever top it let alone in 2017. Yet King somehow outdid himself slightly later in the year. I've already revealed on a previous episode what it was that topped it, but for the sake of this email, I'll save mentioning it save mentioning it for when I get to my favorite single issue of 2017. King continued on and made something happen that I've been waiting years and years to see. Batman proposing to Catwoman. My OTP is getting married. Now they're, that they're engaged, He's begun to write a lot of them both fighting crime together. What's See that? um what's OTP? Yeah, I looked that up and I already forgot it was I think it's a original pairing, but I don't know what the T stands for. You know what? Let me look that up again. Original true pairing. Um a uh, one true pairing. That's what it means. One true pairing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. See, I got the true part. <laughs> <Correct>. <laughs> Yeah, see, well, that's how out of touch I am, or we are now. I guess so. <laughs> the terms nowadays these no, kids are well, using. <laughs> I've I've told my sisters this uh, that I the the only reason why I know I'm getting old is that I can't stay up late anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I get so tired. 
That's a that's a pretty big sign. What yeah. what what time do you usually find yourself going to sleep now? Um, about like eleven thirty. Mm, yeah, yeah, pretty it's early. Like, <laughs> it's it's getting really hard for me to stay up late. Um, also, like OTP, I don't, I don't understand. And then, and 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 some of the the um, the um, abbreviations on Twitter. Like, mm, I, yeah. I end up having to, <laughs> like like LRT. Like, I didn't know what that stood for. <laughs> Yeah, you're not alone, Dane. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Yeah, well, Jordan is teaching us the new slang now, so we we should I be thankful so. for that. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Help keep us young. Uh, but he says, you know, now that they're engaged, he began to write a lot of them, both crying, fighting crime together and doing normal couple things together. See Batman 37 and Batman 38. Speaking of Batman 37, it proves that King can write humor just as well as drama. I've lost count how many times I've cried reading his run, but this issue had me howling with laughter. King made the first big misstep of probably the entire run in Batman 39. I'll get to that later. But even that doesn't even really put a dent in how happy he's made me as a reader this year. He writes the Bat-Cat relationship better than anyone before him, and it's because of how well he understands that dynamic. They're two broken people, and because they're broken, they have the edges that fit together. Amen to that. King also manages to walk the line of writing Batman as vulnerable while still being powerful, which I find so impressive. My favorite artist of 2017 is Joelle Jones. She's back working with King again now, but that wasn't in 2017, so I'm not factoring that in. What I'm factoring in is her gorgeous art in the rules of engagement, all three issues of of which did come out in 2017. The way she draws Batman, especially in his nightmare suit, and Catwoman is extraordinary. I really dig Jones' style. The moment that really stands out to me with her art is a scene at the end of Batman 35. Damien asks Batman, are you happy? There's a panel where Batman and Catwoman look into each other's eyes, and you can literally see the love they have for one another on the page. It's after that Batman replies, I, I'm getting there. But I already had tears in my eyes from the beauty of how Jones conveyed the love between Batman and Catwoman in the prior panel. Already. Now to move on to my favorite single comic book issue of 2017. Can I just say Drum something? Drumble, please. <laughs> oh, Can I just say that? something real quick? What's that? Jordan is going to be so let down when... <laughs> he's <laughs> going to be so heartbroken when inevitably they get a divorce or whatever. Or don't, right. don't even get married. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't even get married. And they, they end up like going their separate ways. <laughs> well, Jordan, if the unthinkable of that happens... You know, you definitely have an outlet to let out your frustration and anger in an email to us. Oh, man, it's <laughs> we'll gonna, be here for you. It's going to be multiple emails. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he goes, who am I kidding? I already revealed it a couple of episodes ago. And even when I had it, this is about as shocking as to me telling you that Bruce Wayne is Batman. Batman Annual Number 2 is not just my favorite comic of 2017, but it's my favorite comic I've ever read. Scratch that. It's my favorite piece of fiction, period, I have ever read. Wow. (laughs) This story is a masterpiece. The way King chronicles the love story of Batman and Catwoman from the first kiss to the last is beautiful. I love how Catwoman sneaks into Wayne Manor at the beginning. Bruce acts like he's annoyed, but you can tell that he's loving every moment of it. When Batman and Catwoman confront each other after she breaks into the safe, there's a moment that further emphasizes how well Catwoman understands Batman. Batman tells Catwoman that his mother died. Catwoman replies that she knows. Batman says that everyone knows. But Catwoman reiterates that she knows, referring to the pain Batman underwent, not the fact that his mother died. My parents, 
my mother, she left, and growing up here in Gotham, I was astray. I was alone, like you. After they left, after a while, did you ever have that moment where you don't know anything else? Where you're almost like this life? You like being by yourself, and you think maybe it's better, maybe it's okay, and then you hate yourself. You hate everything, because it's okay. You see, most people don't truly understand why Batman is the way he is. Catwoman does, though. She doesn't fear him. She understands he's broken, but she loves him anyway. She is broken, too. Going back to King's quote that I alluded to before. I love seeing Batman and Catwoman's first kiss, then jumping forward to see them as an elderly couple and seeing their last kiss. I think it's just brilliant how King continues with the ongoing debate between them over whether their first meeting was the one from Batman number one or from Batman year one. As he's dying, Bruce tells Selina to get Barry to find a version of Bruce from an alternate Earth so that he's always there for her. That is just one of the sweetest Bat-Cat moments ever. Okay, I've got to talk about the end, because it's phenomenal. And although it breaks my heart, it also makes me happy. Early in the issue, Catwoman has been leaving behind mice for Batman. That payoff, or the pay, that pays off so beautifully in the final scene. Selina finds a kitten in the Batmobile with a note that says, I love you too, Cat. From the first kiss to the last. And then Jordan puts balls uncontrollably here. <laughs> uh, this shows how much Batman always loved Catwoman and that he had or that he would always there, be there for her. This gave me the same feeling that Dark Knight Rises gave me five and a half years ago. Although sad, I'm also so elated to see my OTP grow old together and they get a happy ending. Batman annual number two is extraordinary on every level. I seriously want to be buried with this comic book. Wow. Yeah, well, thanks for telling us that, Jordan, because we'll make sure that happens. I mean, way, way down the line. <laughs> Many years from now, we'll make sure you get buried with that issue. If we're still here, I mean, because Jordan is no, younger no. than us. So. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> maybe totally, we, I'm totally dead, Tim. Yeah, maybe we won't be. <laughs> but man, I, I don't think I've ever seen someone so passionate about an annual before yeah which is great which is great to see because most of those are just leftover stories yeah or just little fillers here and there but i mean it's it's it is a great issue there's no doubt about it but i think yeah i don't think anyone's gonna love it as much as jordan does (laughs) which is awesome and then he goes for my favorite moment slash experience of 2017 this actually doesn't go to a moment from batman annual number two well that was my favorite overall comic book there was a moment in a different King issue that I think is my favorite single moment. That would be Batman proposing to Catwoman in Batman 24. Like I said, this is something I've waited so long to see. It's so romantic and beautiful how Batman kept the diamond that Catwoman stole for the first time they met. My joy at reading that final page of Batman kneeling down to propose to Catwoman on the rooftop is something I will never forget. It was such a magical moment. I'm so sad for Jory. <laughs> I'm so sad. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I, I'll say this. I'll be shocked if it lasts longer than if, if it lasts through 2018. You know, something's going to happen when they're already teasing a little wrinkle in there. Yeah. Know, of the issue we'd be talking about today. So yeah, I, hopefully I, it'll last all year. I give it mid 2018. <laughs> OK, that's your prediction. Yeah. And, and, and that's me being optimistic about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm going to be a little more optimistic. So I'm going to give it to the end of 2018. OK. Uh, we'll see who comes out on top. <laughs> <laughs> then Jordan switches gears and says, I'm happy about Walter Hamada being named president of DC Films. I don't know much about the guy, but I know he has experience turning out big profits from lower budget movies. And I think that's something the DCEU could really use. Spending $300 million on a film is absurd. 
The Arrowverse TV show has shown me on a weekly basis that we have the technology to do incredible things without spending much money at all this day and age. There is no reason why Justice League films should need $300 million, uh, what each when each week the Arrowverse shows uh, do what they do for only a few million dollars an episode. Now, the effects on the Arrowverse shows obviously aren't film quality, but they're not $295 million worse than film effects. Hopefully, Hamada will bring some of that thinking to the DCEU. Uh, well, I do agree it should no way spend $300 million <laughs> on yeah. one movie, but yeah, I wouldn't compare it to the Arrowverse shows, especially some of, on the visual effects-wise. When you have like fight choreography on Arrow, yeah, those are good, but some of the effects on Flash and Supergirl, they could be a little something to be desired. <laughs> yeah, what's, I hate what, be, what's um, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, those shows started off with really good effects, and it seems like they're you know, regressing more than progressing as the years go by, like they're losing money <laughs> for the budget for the effects. It seemed to be getting worse, but you know, yeah. But and, yeah, and, the pick I still have. <laughs> and what's going on in on the Flash? It seems like he's a has a court case or something. Yeah, he got, he got framed for murder and was found guilty of that murder, so he's in jail right now. Who, which uh, is B- Barry Allen or mm-hmm. the Flash? Yeah, Barry. Oh, okay. Which is, you know, making for one of the more compelling story elements of, you know, all the DC shows so far, in my opinion, anyway. It's really? the best one going on right now. Yeah. Oh, they're doing it good? Yeah. It, it, it took them a while to get there, but once they finally got in there, that story point has been really good. Yeah, I was wondering what was going on because, like, you see, like, I guess pictures of his lawyer and then, like, in the courtroom and he's wearing, like, a nice suit and I was just wondering what was going on there. Yeah. That was two weeks ago, but now he's you know fully in jail. <laughs> he has a sentence. Why doesn't he just to, flash out of there? He has to serve his time. You know, he doesn't uh, want to be on the run because he wants to prove his innocence and all that. Or just go back in time <laughs> and just make sure you're nowhere. There's no way that you could be even possibly a suspect. Well, he's went back in time one too many <laughs> times oh. to mess things up. I don't think he's going to be doing that again uh-huh. with the potential to mess more stuff up in the timeline. So he's stuck. And they are uh, Iris and Barry are married? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. How come Jordan doesn't talk about that? <laughs> I guess he doesn't like it as much as the uh, Lana and Clark relationship. Or um, <laughs> Oliver and Felicity. Uh, you had to bring that up again. I already went on my rant about that last episode. So, um, nothing's changed on that front. I'll say that. <laughs> Why has it has it gotten worse? Or uh, no, no, not since last week. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same. <laughs> okay, which is I enough to still annoy me. I won't ask you about it. <laughs> you can ask me again when the season's over, and I, I have a feeling it probably will be worse by then. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but Jordan continues saying, you guys talked about the synopsis, stills, and cast for Suicide Squad Hell to Pay. Not only do I want to touch on those, but the trailer has now dropped as well. So I definitely want to chat about that too. I was shocked that it dropped so soon. When it comes to the DCU AON line, usually we get a first look bonus feature along with the previous entry in that line. In this case, Gotham by, or Batman Gotham by Gaslight. And then we get the trailer. In this case, though, they released the trailer before Gotham by Gaslight is even out. And I think the reason for that, Jordan, is because those uh, first looks always get leaked <laughs> before the movies come out. So maybe they wanted to jump ahead of that and just release the trailer, which, in my opinion, I think is a smart way to go. But he continues saying, Tim, I was too nervous about the part in the synopsis where the Suicide Squad is tracking down a mystical object. I was thinking the exact same thing. 
Did they not learn the lesson from the live-action Suicide Squad movie? However, based on the trailer, it looks like this film will be, by and large, uh, more grounded than the live-action one. I'm really intrigued by the road trip style they seem to be going for. I mean, saying that the Suicide Squad members have eccentric personalities seems like an understatement, and cramming them all into an RV for a long road trip seems like it would cause very entertaining chaos to ensue. I'm so happy with some of the non-Squad member villains that are going to appear in this movie. As I said before, Professor Pig is one of the most underrated Batman villains in my opinion, and it's awesome that he's being used in this movie for just a second time in animation. The inclusion of him of and Tobias Whale make me wonder if they're trying to create a little bit of synergy with the DC TV shows. As Professor Pig was on Gotham this season, and Tobias is the big bad of Black Lightning season one. The premiere of which was awesome, by the way. There are a few actors that have me quite excited as well. Christian Slater, Tara Strong, and C. Thomas Howell are reprising their respective roles from the other projects as Deadshot, Harley Quinn, and Zoom, in the case of Strong, from many other projects. And I've been extremely impressed with all three of their previous work as their respective characters. I was also quite pleased with what we heard from Vanessa Williams as Amanda Waller in the trailer. Yeah, when I saw the trailer, uh, I kind of agree with you, Jordan. The stuff where, you know, it's like the road trip and they're encountering all these other villains they have to go up against with seems like it could be a lot of fun. But I just wish, because it seems like they're doing another origin for the Suicide Squad. We got Amanda Waller recruiting them, telling them, you know, about the devices that'll blow them up if, you know, they don't, you know, do what she says and all that. It's like we've covered that already in, you know, previous Suicide Squad movies, the assault on Arkham, not to mention the live action movie. So I just feel it doesn't, doesn't need to be something they have to retread in another Suicide Squad movie. Just have them be the team already and go on another mission. So to me, it just seems like time that could be spent elsewhere instead of recapping all their origin, which for fans of the Suicide Squad who's going to watch this movie, we already know. So hopefully it won't be, you know, a big portion of the movie. They'll just get to the point right away. And he continues saying, I finally watched Spider-Man Homecoming, so I thought I'd share my thoughts. I really enjoyed it. Tom Holland is just so entertaining as both Spidey and Peter Parker. I liked him in Captain America Civil War, but he really gets to shine here. I absolutely love his suit, too. Well, the name of it. <laughs> it was also a treat to see Michael Keaton in the superhero movie again. The film is a blast, and it's probably my favorite MCU movie to date. That being said, it doesn't hold a candle to either of the Amazing Spider-Man films since, as far as I'm concerned. There is nothing in Homecoming that is as compelling as Peter and Gwen's relationship, and there's nothing as emotional resonant at the end of The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Homecoming certainly didn't make me stop wishing they hadn't rebooted again. Well, glad to hear you enjoyed it, but disappointed you didn't like it more than The Amazing Spider-Man movies, because I still hold Homecoming above those two, because like I said before, to me it's the perfect balance of Peter Parker and Spider-Man throughout a course of a movie. And like you said, Tom Holland just nails it for both characters. So that's why I put it over the amazing Spider-Man where I felt it focused too much on the Peter and Gwen stuff and not mixing the right amount of Spider-Man and all that. But that's why we all have opinions. And there's what uh, six movies, Spider-Man movies. Now <laughs> we can debate on which is the best, but I think we'll all agree. Spider-Man three will never be on anyone's favorite Spider-Man movie list. <laughs> Not to go back to that again, but uh, he continues saying, if I didn't know how far in advance they write their episodes, I think the Arrow writers listened to our gripes on the last one. The premiere was really good. It still isn't back to season five level, but it felt like to me like the very strong start to the second half of season six. Seeing Green Arrow out in the field solo taking on many of the enemies at once brought me right back to season one, and it was great to see. Thea gave the season a jolt when she came out of the coma a few episodes ago, and I continued enjoying her presence in this episode. I miss her so much at the beginning of the season. 
Black Siren had some good moments, and I love that she blew a kiss to do her canary cry. There are some really cool nods to the episode, too. Seeing Jerry Bertinelli and hearing Huntress mentioned multiple times made me want to see her again even more. Hopefully that was intentional, planted the seeds for her return. There was also a pretty fun nod to Batman, which I certainly appreciated. I think that's three for the season. Yeah, Arrow's been okay since it came back. I like the dynamic of the team splitting up, but the main villain, Caden James, such to me right now is a retread of what we just saw of Prometheus. You know, his motivation being that he thinks Green Arrow killed his son and he wants revenge. We just saw that last year <laughs> with Adrian Chase about wanting revenge for his father. And to me, this was like, you got the writers couldn't think of a better reason to motivate this villain. So that's been a little disappointing to me, the whole villain aspect. So maybe there's more to come to be revealed, but we'll see. That's been the biggest disappointment for me this far in this season of Arrow. And Scooby-Doo and Batman the Brave and the Bold is out now. I feel like I should put a spoiler tag in here, but let's be honest. It's Batman and Brave and the Bold team-up movie, so there's not much to spoil. I have very mixed feelings on this film. I've never been the biggest Batman Brave and the Bold fan. And because of that, I actually consider this a much better Scooby-Doo movie than I do a Batman movie. I'm actually a pretty big fan of Scooby-Doo, and I enjoyed this film a lot as a Scooby-Doo film, because the tone of this movie works much better for my preference when it comes to Scooby-Doo than it does Batman. I was not a fan of Catwoman's portrayal in this movie. They portrayed her as a straight-up villain, she didn't have a single scene with Batman, and they gave her a different suit than she had in the actual show that I didn't care for. Jeffrey Combs rephrased his role as the question from Justice League Unlimited, which was awesome, but there was something off about his performance. There were some cringeworthy Batman lines in the film. I go wherever puppet-related criminal <laughs> rears, or he goes, I go wherever puppet-related crime rears its ugly head, and they made, and they made as much of a fool of Bane as Batman and Robin did. There's a scene where Batman is in a diner while it's open in his costume that was utterly ridiculous. I know similar things happened in a scene I love in the new Batman adventures, but there it was in the middle of the night and the diner was closed. I also don't like how many aspects of the Batman mythology Batman the Brave and the Bold neglects in general. And that extends to this movie. In the film, we don't see Alfred, Gordon, Wayne Manor, or Bruce out of costume. In the movie, Batman runs a team of mystery solvers. Plastic Man is on it, and I didn't even understand why they use him instead of Elongated Man, since they have similar powers, and Elongated Man is actually a detective. But I'm sure Dane is happy they use Plastic Man, though. Also, I can't stand Aquaman as he is portrayed in The Brave and the Bold. He's irritating, and he, uh, or (laughs) if I can talk, he's irritating, and every insult people make towards the character. As I said, there's stuff I like, though. There are some pretty funny moments in the film, such as one involving Scooby and Shaggy in Arkham Asylum, and one from the trailer where Batman learns the hard way that Scooby-Doo doesn't know left from right. As a huge fan of the animated series of Batman, I loved hearing Tom Kenny reprise his role as the Penguin from the show. He he didn't voice him in The Brave and the Bold. I enjoyed how many villains they were able to include in the movie, even though many of them just made cameos. I really loved the Scooby-Doo characters, and while I took issue with the portrayals of many DC characters, I love pretty much everything specifically involving the Scooby-Doo characters, and that's what makes the film work for me overall. It's also played on my nostalgia for Scooby-Doo meets Batman, which I watched a lot as a kid. Yeah, I haven't seen this one yet. I want to because, uh, as you probably know, Jordan, I'm a big fan of Batman, Brave and the Bull and the silliness of it. So I'd be leaning more towards that more than the Scooby-Doo stuff. But like you said, it's a good mixture of the Scooby-Doo, and I'll probably enjoy the Batman stuff more than you did in this one. 
Although I'll probably end up uh, liking it once I do see it. But I just hope it sparks more Brave and the Bold movies or you know shorts or something. I don't think we're going to get a new series, but if we just get more of that version of Batman, I'll be happy because I've always been a big fan. And he goes, Batman 38 was such a cool story. Spoilers, it was really intriguing and frankly disturbed being detective story. I really love how we see Batman put the pieces together through the issue. The reveal of who uh, the killer actually was made my jaw drop. Yes, or I uh, skipped a line there. He goes, after he made my jaw drop. And I think it's so fascinating how Maddie perverts the idea of Batman in a way. You're a sick kid with dead parents. Well, yes, but what else is Bruce Wayne? That line really stuck with me. Even though this issue took the focus away from the Bat-Cat relationship a bit, King still threw in all all these lovely little Bat-Cat moments. Has Selina moved into Wayne Manor yet? It certainly looks like it. I love seeing her. dinner together again. In Heart of Hush, we learned that Selena likes to pretend that she's asleep with Bruce and talking every thought she's really listening. And one of the best cat in one of the best bat cat scenes ever. I'd like to think Selena was doing the same thing here in Batman 38. There's also the moment where Bruce comes back to Wayne Manor after confronting Maddie. And you can tell the encounter is haunting him. Selena is sitting on the couch waiting for him. In my head canon, I like to think Bruce sat with her as she comforted him in that moment of self-doubt was, pro- was presumably having. Phenomenal stuff in that issue. Remember how I talked about King's first real misstep of its entire run before? Yeah, unfortunately, I've got to get to that now. I have a feeling you could have guessed what I was referring to. Batman 39 was another amazing Tom King story up until the final panel, which is absolutely horrid. And I should mention absolutely horrid all in caps. <laughs> Uh, spoilers, let me focus on the positives first. Um, so I don't have another temper tantrum like the Penguin in Batman Returns when Batman stopped him from controlling the Batmobile. The opening scene with Gordon where he was about to rip whoever lit up the Bat signal a new one until he realized it was Wonder Woman was hilarious. I love the scenes in the Batcave between Batman and Catwoman and their banter. I've said it before many times, but I'll say it again. No one writes those two better. I cracked up at their back and forth about whether Batman has a thing for warring on crime or not. I couldn't help but just smile as Catwoman was trying not to laugh and failing and telling Batman that his new armor looked ridiculous. They're absolutely the best. The whole twist about uh, time moving slower on Earth than in the alternate realm where the gentle man was fighting him, knowingly trapping Batman and Wonder Woman there for 10 years was pretty brilliant and shocking. I'm ready for Catwoman to kick his butt now. As my final positive comment before I move on to my gigantic negative, Jones's art is breathtaking. I named her my favorite artist of 2017 for a reason, and she could easily earn that again in 2018 if she continues working with King and doing stuff like this. Alrighty, on to the elephant in the room. The final panel involves Bruce and Diana leaning towards each other, and it made me sick to my stomach. What was that? The worst case scenario is that Batman is going to cheat on Selina. I don't think that's going to happen, and it better not. Bruce loves Selena more than anything, and would it be entirely and it would be entirely out of character for him to do that. King has also shown me over the course of this of his run that he seems to be a big bat cat shipper as I am. I can't imagine him doing something like that. So my guess and hope is that it's just a fake out and that Bruce is going to back away. Again, he better. I've also heard theories that this is an imposter, not really Diana, that he's with, and that Bruce leaning in to get close enough to attack her. I think those are the best case scenarios. 
But even then, the scene is completely unnecessary, and one would have served to anger me and stress me out for two weeks. In that case, that Bruce is going to back away, or in the case that Bruce is going to back away, I guess the intention was for this to be seen as a test for Bruce's love for Selena. The thing is, we don't need that. We know how much Bruce loves Selena. Now, of course, I'm always thrilled to get reminded of that, but certainly not in this way. Crossing my fingers for the best, I really think everything is going to be okay. And even, but even so, this is likely always going to become or going to bother me, unfortunately. Yeah, you'll hear what I have to say about that shortly, Jordan. But <laughs> I knew when I read that that you weren't going to be too happy about that. And now I can just picture you being like the penguin <laughs> reading your comic and just being so visibly upset while you're reading that. But his questions are for this email on Arrow. Do you think that either Roy, who knows who we know is coming back, or Helena Bertinelli? Or, or Lena Bertinelli, and I can't talk on this email. Uh, who best, or who, again, <laughs> let me just start this all over. Jeez, on, Tim, what's going on? I know. <laughs> on Arrow, do you think that either Roy, who we know is coming back, or Helena Bertinelli, who, based on the last episode, could be coming back, will team up with Oliver on Arrow to give him a hand while the newbies are no longer working with him? Would you want to see that? There, I was able to make it through the question. <laughs> but as far as uh, Roy and Helena go. Uh, I, I wouldn't mind that actually. Like I said, I do know I do like the team dynamic being split up right now, and I think if Roy or Helena came back to join with Oliver, it could make for some interesting storylines. So, yeah, I could see it happening. I think definitely it's going to happen with Roy at least for two or three episodes, but we'll see if they bring the hunters back. And the second question is: Tom King said that Maddie will play the big role moving forward on his run. Do you have any theories as to how that could be? I'm all for it, since, as I said, I thought he was a very thought-provoking villain. Yeah, that's interesting that I didn't see Tom King say that, but it'd be interesting to see what he does with him, because I agree, it is you know a new, unique, interesting villain that he's created, but it's going to be hard to use him in a different way than he did here, now that Batman knows what he can do. And he, again, he's just a little kid, so it's going to be hard for him to outsmart Batman more than a few times. So <laughs> we'll see what happens going forward, but it's What's, what makes the character so interesting it, it's to see how he's going to be used and if he will be, you know, a worthy opponent for Batman or a viable threat that can, you know, keep Batman on his tones. So it's going to be interesting to see what King does with him. So look forward to see what happens with him in the future. And he goes, as of my writing this email, we're just two days away from Batman Gotham by Gaslight. It's the most anticipated DC animated movie ever. I already love the comic, and the fact that they're incorporating Selena into the story for the film just has my excitement through the roof. It really looks like it's going to have a lot of Bat-Cat moments in it, and I can't wait. I really need some of now after the end of Batman 39. I'm jealous of you guys, since you're in a future where the film is out as you're reading this, lol. Anyway, I can't wait to watch it and discuss my thoughts with you on my next email. Well, don't be too jealous, Jordan, because I haven't seen it yet. Again, like all digital releases, I'm waiting for the Blu-ray, but... Thankfully, this is only two weeks, so by the time we have our next episode, I'll have seen it and we'll definitely give my review on it. And I'm excited for it, too. I think it looks really good. And it concludes saying, Gotham by Gaslight isn't the only huge thing coming out in January, though. Episode 4 of Batman The Enemy Within releases that day, too. Needless to say, I'm going to be very busy that day. There's also a new issue of Injustice, too, and new episodes of The Flash and Black Lightning that night. Not only that, but Batman the Enemy with it is, is doing incredible stuff with the Bat-Cat relationship. So I'll be a so I'll be a second thing that day I can look forward to. Hopefully, 
give me my bat cat fix in this stressful time when it comes to the comics. I finally was able to catch up on Batman the Enemy Within, and Batman the Telltale series as a whole continues to be one of the best Batman things I have ever experienced. I don't know if you guys are caught up yet, so I don't want to spoil anything, but I'm loving it. I can't wait to hear your guys' thoughts when you do catch up, if you haven't already. Best, Jordan. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm still, <laughs> I haven't played any of the episodes beside the first ones. At this point now, I'm probably just going to wait for it to be completed, and then I'll go through all the remaining episodes to just plow through them all and experience them as one whole sitting. So definitely looking forward to it. Like, I know you said the good things about it, Jordan, and they seem to be getting good reviews still, too. So definitely got to make sure I get back on that as well, and we'll definitely give you my review on that once they finish it. You're still behind on it too, Dane, same as me. <laughs> only played the first one. Yeah, I only played the first one. You know, I don't really have enough time on my hands, especially now that I have to watch uh, Smallville. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> all ten you seasons. Have priorities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, there's like 200 episodes, Tim, or something. Uh, yeah, there's over 200. So. <laughs> yeah. So, I have over 200 to watch. <laughs> and I'll be pleasantly surprised if you're able to watch all 200 of them <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah uh, thank you jordan for your email um we always enjoy reading them um uh, it's gonna be a long 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 smallville rewatch or watch watch <laughs> period uh, yeah i was gonna say rewatch maybe just on the first episode <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah thank you jordan um but now we can move on to our comic book reviews. Uh, for this episode, we have Batman number 39, Batman TMNT number 3, and Doomsday Clock number 3. Uh, like we say at the beginning of every single episode, Tim. Every, sing- every single comic book review. <laughs> this, say, this, isn't, this isn't the I love you part, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no. Um, <laughs> There's going to be a lot of spoilers in this. So if you haven't read your books, you might want to come back to this part later. Um, and a rating scale for this episode is going to be small episodes that Dane still has to watch. <laughs> Which, Which, even if I give a comic book a five, it's a lot more than that. <laughs> you, have <to> watch. <laughs> you, you have to give a comic book a rating of, I'd say, at least 180 for it to be a positive review. Yeah, do like a four or something like that. Uh, I'll have to put it in Smallville episode terms, I guess. So yeah, Batman number 39, going to what Jordan said about it. I know before I read it, there was some controversy regarding that ending with Batman and Wonder Woman. I didn't know it at the time, so when I was reading the issue, I was wondering what it could be. But before we get to that, I do agree it was a different, unique story with Batman and Wonder Woman teaming up. It does start in a funny way with Gordon seeing the bat symbol wondering who the heck lit it up. And he goes to see Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman's telling him, you know, I need to use it to get Batman's attention. And then Batman's already there to have them talk about what uh, she needs him for. And she goes on to say how, you know, the gentleman, uh, this being is fighting off this hordes of monsters who, you know, their numbers are like they go. They're based on the sins of man. So there's tons of them and they're never ending. So. That's why the gentleman has to stay there for like almost forever to keep fighting him off. And Batman and Wonder Woman uh, actually helped him one time for a Justice League mission, uh, just for a short period. But then uh, they told him, you know, they offered him a way back one day. You know, they'll take 
his place in that realm for a little bit just so we can have a break. And so and Wonder Woman tells Batman he has now accepted the offer and, you know, we need to go back there and fulfill our promise. So Batman, you know, goes to the Batcave, tells Catwoman, like Jordan said, this was a great moment where he puts on that suit of armor. It's like it's like a medieval knight armor. And the look on Catwoman's face as she's trying to cover up her smile, laughing at him. And Batman just all, please don't. And she goes, you look ridiculous. And then we get to him with Wonder Woman. And she's kind of telling him the opposite. No, don't listen to that. You don't look ridiculous. And she goes, you look. And Batman goes, ridiculous. And Wonder Woman says, yeah, I guess you do. Just a bit. <laughs> so it's good dialogue there. So they get transported into that realm. They're fighting off all the monsters. Then the gentleman or the gentleman is back in, you know, the normal plane. And he sees Catwoman and the rest of the issue. Catwoman kind of shows him on the town takes him to that Batman restaurant uh, while Batman and Wonder Woman, you know, just shows what they're doing in their daily routine of finding off these monsters to a point where it's becoming like just a casual conversation they have where Catwoman or Wonder Woman is telling Batman, you know, you must miss her. I know you love her. You're going to marry her. But now you're just stuck only here with me. And that she's telling Batman that he's too busy fighting this big monster. He's being captured. And then, you know, they're still having the conversation thinking like it's nothing. And Wonder Woman easily frees him. So it's almost become just second nature and just no big deal when they're fighting these big monsters and having these casual conversations. And, yeah, we get the reveal that a gentleman reveals that time passes slowly there. You know, everyone in that realm doesn't age. And so it says, uh, as I'm trying to remember, oh, yeah. He goes – him and Catwoman are talking about him going to see his wife and he says, you know, I believe he saw her about a year ago. And Catwoman's wondering, you know, you thought you've been there 10,000 of years and that's where he explains, you know, Batman and Wonder Woman. They've only been gone for a few hours but it's revealed in the final pages that it's actually been 10 years in that realm. And that gets to the big controversy where, you know, Bruce and Diana are talking to each other how it's just them, you know, it's just them and the monsters – and, you know, it's just they'll always have that forever. And, you know, that's where Bruce and Diana lean in. So it looks like it's going to kiss. And that's where the issue ends on a cliffhanger. And, yeah, I get how in Jordan's case, especially him being the biggest bat cat shipper, how this can cause him to be really angry. I think if he was going to have them kiss, they would have done it in this page to really cause controversy. I think he left it open-ended like this where they're just leaning in to have something happen at the beginning of the next issue where they're not actually going to kiss. And I hope that's the case too, where Jordan was saying, it'd be a shame if they threw away all they built with the Batman Catwoman relationship. Now that they got engaged to have Batman cheat on her like this, it's just, yeah, it does seem out of character and it lessens, you know, you know, the love that Batman and Catwoman have and what they built up, it would cheapen it. And then it would just, you know, it just feels so unnecessary and almost pointless that they built all this up to have it be ruined here by Batman doing this with Wonder Woman. So I don't think it's going to happen and nor should it happen. So it's just probably a little, you know, little wrinkle they want to throw in there to get fans a little worried that maybe Batman and Catwoman is not going to last. So I don't if it that relationship does end up ending, I don't think it's going to be because of what Batman and Wonder Woman here do here. It's probably going to be for something else and maybe a little bigger because That'd be really lame. It's because Batman goes with Wonder Woman and that ruins Batman's relationship with Catwoman. Batman's going to have more. I expect him to have more honor than that to, you know, keep his engagement and his promise to marry Catwoman. So to me, it's just a little red herring that they're probably throwing in there to get fans worried. So but it was still a cool story. I enjoyed it. I'm going to give this three and a half out of five episodes that Dane needs to catch up on Smallville, which is probably about, I don't know, 
in the 90, so maybe 90 episodes. So it's a three and a half turn around to be. Yes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much the rest of these comics, you're going to have a lot of episodes to catch up on. <laughs> so Batman and TMNT number two, issue three. Uh, the series that keeps on giving when it comes to fan service, it continues in this one. <laughs> I love how it starts off with Damien. Um, he has this determined look on his face that he's looking at an op- opponent saying, you know, you're not going to beat me. I'm the best there is. Like, you don't know what you're up against. Then we see this big explosion happen in front of him. Then the next page, it just turns out he's playing a video game with Michelangelo and he just lost at it. <laughs> and then Raphael and Casey Jones are letting him have it. And then we get the classic Damien insults to the turtles and him and Raphael start going at it. And that leads to a moment, you know, one of the big fan service moments here where Raphael and Damien have a fight, which was pretty awesome. And just seeing them go at it, it was pretty evenly matched. You know, it's the two hotheads, the one hothead turtle against the hothead Robin. And they both get good punches and kicks and none of them really dominate the other. But, of course, in their dialogue, both of them thinks they're the better fighter and they had the upper hand and won the fight and really... It was just a draw <laughs> once Batman, Leonardo, and Splinter come back in to have them break up the fight. So it was a cool little moment. It's, these two characters are kind of similar, kind of have chips on their shoulders, and they're going out of here. It was pretty cool to see. So then Batman, like I said, Leonardo and Splinter were scouting Bane in his hideout, looking for the right moment to attack, and Batman saying they'll hold off still. He's almost out of Venom. We'll wait for his withdrawals to kick in, and then we can easily grab him and take him back to Gotham. But little do they know, as the last issue ended with Baxter Stockman coming under Bane's employ and having him synthesize more Venom. And we get to reveal that he has succeeded and he has more Venom ready to go. But he's going to use it, you know, on uh, the mutants Bebop and Rocksteady, which, you know, they're already big mutants of a rhinoceros and warthog already. But seeing him induced with Venom, when I saw they were hooked up to the machines to be connected to the Venom, I was like, oh, boy, I can't wait to see them even bigger and more huge and see what they look like with venom flowing through their veins. So that was pretty cool, but I haven't yet seen what they look like that happens later in the issue. But before we get to that, as always, what makes these issues so fun and so good that mixes in with the fun is the, you know, good character moments. We have another one with Donatello and April as he's still feeling so unsure of himself and so guilty about bringing Bane to this world and how, you know, he's wondering what his place is with this team and his family as he doesn't know what to do and what anyone needs him for when he failed both physically and met and his strength, which is being the smart one. So just, you know, more good character moments there that balances off the fun action and fan service stuff that we get throughout the issues. So Batman and the turtles with Robin and Splinter, they go to confront Bane to take him down and they infiltrate the laboratory with Baxter Stockman. That's where we get the reveal where Bebop and Rocksteady come crashing through the room, even bigger and more bulked up with the venom flowing through their veins. And it was a pretty cool image. It's flash page with seeing them busting in about to go against uh, the turtles and Batman. And even like Damien's dialogue where he goes, aren't there any normal looking villains in this world? <laughs> like they're all just mutants and mutant animals here. So that's going to be fun to see them take Bebop and Rocksteady on all, you know, mutated even further with the venom. And then Baxter Stockman, who of course we know from the animated series, eventually gets mutated into a fly and that happens in this issue where he, the, some of the mutagen mixed in with the venom crashes into him or spills on him and he mutates into the fly that we all know and love because that's what we're most familiar with that uh, turtles fans we know baxter as a fly <laughs> but even though he does uh, you know he makes for a formidable formidable villain just as a scientist in the current idw comics and some of the other animated series so 
his characteristics just aren't based on him being a fly, but that's where he's most fun and unique. <laughs> so the issue ends with, you know, Bebop and Rocksteady coming in. They're full of venom. Bane makes his entrance. And then the foot soldiers now all wearing, you know, the familiar Bane luchador mask hooked up with venom tanks and, you know, to their backs as well. So venom, you know, Bane has a venom induced army now to go against Batman and the turtles and which I can't wait to see play out. So this was like, is another fun fan service issue with a lot of cool moments. Except the fight between Damien and Raphael, seeing Bebop and Rocksteady induced with Venom, just a lot of fun stuff. So I'm going to give this one four out of five episodes of Smallville that Dane's going to have to watch. So I'd put that at around the hundred mark. So a <laughs> hundred episodes for Dane on this comic. Now we get to the big one, Doomsday Clock number three. And first off, I got to say, I love, I was able to get the one of the variant covers for this issue. It's the one where Batman in the Batcave just reading Rorschach's journal. And to me, there's just something very cool about that image of Batman reading, you know, Walter Kovac's journal. That was such an important piece of the Watchmen story. I just love that cover. So this issue picks off. I love where it starts, where we're getting a recount of the comedian's, you know, final night and fight with Ozymandias as we get a recount of that happening. But, you know, done this time with beautiful art by Gary Frank. And I love how. We finally see, you know, Adrian's face here where in the original comic, we don't know who it is. It's a mystery, but we actually see his face now throwing the comedian out the window. And here's where things get pretty interesting right off the bat. Yeah, we see the comedian falling, falling down into the street, but it just turns pitch black and we only see the button. And then we see the, the panel again, beautifully laid out by Gary Frank and drawn as well, where the panel, the black panel fades into an ocean and it turns into an ocean and we see a splash hit there and it's the comedian in the ocean. He comes up struggling to breathe and swims to the shore, which looks to be in Metropolis at Hobbs Bay. You know, he's just out of breath and we just see the voice say, hello, Blake. And of course, you know, the word, the balloon dialogues in blue. So we know it's Dr. Manhattan. And then we just see his feet as he walks, stands right by the comedian and the comedian just says, doc. So, this is one of the big reveals right off the bat of how the comedian survived. I mean, you know, that was the big cliffhanger of the last issue that he survived or it was back to life. And this is one of the things I'm not sure I'm kind of mixed on the one main thing so far in the story. And it's good that it hasn't answered everything just yet. And it creates that mystery of what exactly is going on. Cause it's a question I have about it. I don't think it's, you know, Dr. Manhattan just teleported the comedian before he fell into the DC universe. I think he still actually died, but how did, you know, the, does the comedian just bring him back to life? And, you know, the moment he opened his eyes, he was now in the ocean because the way the comic played out, like I said, it was almost like as he was falling, instead of hitting the ground, he hit the ocean. But I don't think that's the case because in, of course we know from the original Watchmen story, his body did hit the ground and it was covered with blood there. And, you know, as Rorschach picks up the button, there was blood all over the ground. They had the funeral for him and the casket. So, it just makes me wonder at what point did Dr. Manhattan bring the comedian back? And I kind of hope it isn't just where he teleports him before he hits the ground and he never did die. I do want it to where he still died and, you know, that set off the events that happened in Watchmen. And the thing that, you know, kind of makes me believe that that is going to be the case is the comedian's dialogue here where he says death changes a man, thinking that he did die, but he was just brought back somehow. So that is the big mystery of still going on in the story, just what Dr. Manhattan has planned for the comedian, why he brought him back and just how it was done. So I was a little, you know, curious of wondering still what his purpose is going to be. 
and kind of didn't know how I felt about it at first. But now I'm kind of confident that Jeff Johns, you know, he's not going to do anything that's going to hurt the watch, original Watchmen comic to have it where the comedian never died. It's just going to be he was brought back somehow and just for a purpose that Dr. Manhattan has for him. We just don't know what it is yet. So I'm intrigued to find that out. But the course of his battle with, you know, Ozymandias in this issue was really cool. Just kind of the opposite of their other battle. And again, there's more great artwork here in panel layout as the comedian is trying to shoot Ozymandias. And you know, like he just quickly dodges each blast in a quick, fluid way that was, you know, really got the sense of how it was drawn and laid out, how quick Ozymandias was able to dodge those bullets, which was really cool. And I liked how the comedian tried to knock him out the window at first but to kind of, you know, pay him back for what he did to him. But this is like Luther's building. His class isn't going to break so easily. So he wasn't able to do that. But Ozymandias is able to escape very injured. He just jumps out the window and you know, now he's really hurt. And the other big thrust of the story is Batman finally confronting the new Rorschach. And I just love their interaction here. At first, it's just simple banter with them talking about each other's mask and like Batman saying, hmm, yours keeps changing. Like, who are you? And, you know, Rorschach's starting to tell him a little bit of everything that's going on and even hinting at that he's feeling guilty with working with Ozymandias here, like feeling like, oh, I should have killed him. I shouldn't be here. Like, I hate him. Why am I doing this? And so just wait. Just read this journal. So he hands Batman uh, Walter Kovacs journal and Batman's going to read it. And over the course, <laughs> Rorschach is telling him to hurry up. I just love how the there's a page where the panels are. There's no dialogue. You just see Rorschach looking over Batman's shoulder, being bored, kind of looking like, oh, come on, hurry up. So he finally says, what page are you on? And Batman's all four. He's all, that's all. <laughs> so Batman tells him, look, maybe you just go upstairs, clean up, you know, take a rest, you know, just as I read this book. So that's what he does. And this is where we finally get Rorschach unmasked. We finally see who's under there. But we still don't know who it is. It is a young African-American man who maybe looks like about, you know, between late 20s, early 30s. So he seems to be a little younger than the original Rorschach was. Um, but then he had a funny conversation with Alfred as he's showing him his room, asking for more pancakes because the ones he ate when he first entered Wayne Manor was so good. So Alfred's going to whip him up some more pancakes, which is nice. But then there's a rumor, a page where he's taking a shower, getting cleaned up. And I liked how he's really, you know, not just cleaning himself because he's you know, physically dirty, but there's this stench and filth in him that he has and feels because he's working with Ozymandias. And he goes, you know, I need to wash this off. I need to get clean. Like I shook hands with him. And after all that he did in to the, to the, to the world with his plan and just feeling so guilty and dirty about working with him, even though it's for a greater good. So I like that, you know, little conflict and torment that this new Rorschach is having right here and him working with Ozymandias. Then another part of the issue deals with a uh, mime and marionette where, uh, they're going to get involved with a pretty big character sooner or later because they enter this, this bar and it's filled with, you know, criminals, gangsters, CD people. And as soon as they see the mime and marionette enter, they say, hey, you're not allowed in here. You can't wear makeup. The boss doesn't like it. And he says, this is the Joker's turf. And that name catches marionette's, you know, interest is all the Joker. Like, who's he? So a fight ensues and a pretty entertaining fight sequence. As we found out in the last issue, mime likes to, you know, mime his actions, like holding a gun and causing threats when he doesn't really have one. But it turns out, when it looks like he's not holding the gun and he's just miming it, he really does have a gun. <laughs> Apparently, he has a special type of gun that's invisible. And we see it kind of appear as he's using it in this issue and takes out a lot of these, you know, criminals and gang members here in this bar. And here, him and Marionette just go to town and take all of them out. And then 
the next thing they want to do is go find the Joker. So I cannot wait to see how the Joker is going to play into the story and, you know, mix it up with Marionette and mine. It should be <laughs> quite the encounter. So I'm looking forward to that. And then the other big point and a turning point in this issue, which, you know, is going to harken back to the original Watchmen comic was we were getting a story within the story, kind of how the original Watchmen had the Black Freighter comic. For this one, uh, we're going to an old, you know, uh, detective movie. It's a the fictional character is Nathaniel Dusk, private investigator, and the, act, the fictional actor playing is Carver Coleman. And I believe Nathaniel Dusk, the character in this, you know, fictional movie here, is the actual golden era DC comic character, kind of a lesser known one. But Jeff Johns is kind of bringing him back and using him for this story. So it takes place where in the senior citizen home where they're changing the channel, watching the news, and then someone turns it to this movie. And we get this story that kind of like how the Black Freighter, I'm sure, is going to reflect certain elements that's going to go on the main story about uh, Nathaniel Dust trying to solve this double homicide and is about to investigate. And at the same time, you see what he's going through in his personal life about his ex-wife being murdered and his stepchildren being taken away or living with you know, their grandparents instead of him. So it's going to be interesting to see how his story unfolds and how it connects to, you know, the main story going on. But I do like how Jeff Johns is kind of paying tribute to what Watchmen did with the Black Freighter and all that and how Doomsday Clock's going to have its own version with this Nathaniel Dust character in his movies. And at the back of the issue, it kind of gives the history of, you know, the actor Carver Coleman who plays Nathaniel Dusk and how he landed the roles in, of that character in the movies that he played, but how he himself ended up being a murder victim. So I'm sure that will play into certain things of the story as well. And then also the issue ends on a, something I didn't see coming as we go back to Batman and Rorschach where Rorschach's having a nightmare and we get a little more into who he is and we see him behind the wheel of a car and behind a taxi right before, you know, the alien squid emerges and just destroys everything. But he was able to survive that. I and mean, this was a nightmare he was having. We see, from you know, a first-person point of view of what he experienced when the squid attacked. And then he wakes up with Bruce Wayne right there. And he just tells him, you know, you're safe. And he goes, you know, you almost slept for 24 hours, and I've completed Kovac's journal. I know where Dr. Manhattan is. And, of course, that makes his eyes light up, and Batman or Rorschach go to work. Batman tells him, you know, he was able to trace his temporal you know, anomalies and found it in one place called Arkham Asylum. So that's where they're going to go. And so him and Rorschach enter Arkham. It's just cool seeing Batman and Rorschach working together. I mean, the only thing missing is that it's not, uh, you know, the original Walter Kovac Rorschach. But still, just visually, seeing that classic Rorschach costume with Batman in his new costume, which everyone's making a big deal of now where, you know, Batman has a new costume. It has the, you know, gold shield and the oval as the emblem for, you know, his chest piece. And everyone's wondering what it can mean. But I'm kind of just thinking we'll find out, you know, in the time you know, this takes place a year before the current DC books where they're at now. So I'm sure we'll get the story that explains Batman's new costume. But Batman and Rorschach enter Arkham Asylum and Batman opens the door and just tells Rorschach he's in here. So Rorschach enters in and just, you know, is asking Dr. Manhattan, are you here? We need to talk. But then the door shuts on him and he realizes Batman has locked him up in his own cell. And Batman just goes, I'm sorry, but you belong in here. And Rorschach just loses it, saying, I'm going to kill you for this. I'm going to cut out your eyes. And, you know, no, wait, I apologize. Please open the door. Let me out. And the page of the book just ends with Batman walking down the halls of Arkham. And you hear Rorschach just yelling, let me out. So this took me by surprise. I really thought Batman and Rorschach were going to be, you know, working together for a bit. And that's what we all wanted to see. But this is what, you know, makes it makes Jeff Johns a great writer, you know, 
diverging from expectations and doing something different. You know, this is the last thing I thought would happen with Batman throwing Rorschach in Arkham Asylum. And there's still debate on what Batman's motive is, like if he doesn't believe him or not, and just think he's a nut. But I don't think th- I don't think that's the case. I mean, we know Batman has experience with, you know, the button storyline with him and the Flash investigating that. Now reading Rorschach's journal, I think in his own way, he's putting the pizzas together and he's going to investigate it more on his own terms. I just don't think he trusts Rorschach yet. Probably reading that journal doesn't think he should be working with or he's not someone he should be working with at this time. So he's going to keep him locked up for his own good while Batman does his own investigation and try to find Dr. Manhattan. So I think that's the case and not where Batman thinks he's just a nut job. And he doesn't believe anything he says. I do think Batman believes him. He's just going to go about it his own way. So that was a great place to end it on. Jeff John is just killing it with Doomsday Clock. You know, every time I read it, I just can't wait to turn the page and see what's going to happen next. The merging of the two universes working, the characters from these two universes are working so good. And I just can't wait for more. The only bad thing now is that it was announced the book is going to be going bi-monthly. So it's going to have to wait even longer to get the next issues. And it's probably not going to end now until 2019. So it's going to be a long wait, but I think it's going to be worth it. I really think Three issues in now, Jeff John is delivering something special. So I'm going to give Dudes a Clock number four, or I should say number three, four and a half out of five Smallville episodes that Dane needs to rewatch. So this is in the high 100s, about 190 episodes, Dane. Jeez. You're going to have to rewatch for this one. <laughs> so good. So yeah, I guess that's it for yep. um, our podcast. Um, just go over to BatmanUniverse.net. Facebook.com slash Batman Universe. Twitter handles at Batman Universe. Uh, the show's Twitter handles at Batfans Podcast. Tim's Twitter handles at TimG311. And my Twitter handles at Dane Says Banana. Uh, you can email the show at BatfansLPants at gmail.com and you can rate and review us on iTunes. So, with that, like we say, Dane, every single episode, Tim. We love each and every one of you with all of our bad hearts. <laughs> yeah all of our bad hearts so with that see you guys next time see you next time everybody